lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates, hobby talk like you've never seen it. Sports cards live and none could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, welcome everybody to episode number 187 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, June the 10th, 2023. My name is Jeremy Lee. I'd like to thank everybody who tuned in last Saturday for a Just Jeremy Q&A episode. It was a lot of fun. Check that out on the YouTube channel tomorrow on the channel 9:30 Eastern is the PWCC weekly hockey auction coverage with Josh Madigan of the Hockey Cards Gong Show and then Monday night is the inaugural episode of MC Mondays Live where I'll be joined by Mike Kantz of MC Sports Cards to cover the ending of his first MC Mondays auctions ending on eBay these are meant to be items worth $1000 and more there's 61 lots. Should be a fun time. Please join us Monday night for that inaugural episode. And then Tuesday is episode four of Taking Stock with Dennis Zender, also known as PC with DPZ. And we will be taking stock of chill bidding. I'd like to ask you to join the now over 400,000 people who've already downloaded the Center Stage app across both iOS and Android for quick comps and card management features. Their app is the fastest and most accurate at card shows or at home to help you price your cards, build, organize, and share your collection with your friends. Find other collectibles and collectors follow to follow using their new social sharing features. They've announced some exciting new partnerships. So check out their Instagram account and join me in supporting the great team they have and the innovation they are undertaking. Also, Use protection, practice safe swaps, everybody. Veriswap is an app and middleman service that lets you securely trade cards through the mail. Every transaction up to $1 million is fully insured by their guarantee. To use Veriswap, simply upload your inventory, make trade, partial trade, or full cash offers, and negotiate with the thousands of people and traders already on their platform. Check them out on iOS and Android. There is a link in the video description below to get your first trade on Veriswap for $1. I'd like to also shout out Leighton Sheldon and Just Collect. We will not be doing a vintage spotlight segment tonight, but he'll be back next Saturday with our, during the episode when our guest will be Sasha Tamadin, also known as Sasha T. That is next Saturday's episode. Also, check out hobbynewsdaily.com for your, your daily dose and entertaining content. It is a collaboration of various content creators and original writers. Check that out, hobbynewsdaily.com. And finally, Tag Grading Discord server is now live. Tag collectors are chatting live, buy, selling, and trading, sharing picks, talking shop, connect with hobbyists who like their who like transparent and reproducible grading. If Discord isn't your thing, join the Tag Community Cage on Facebook. It's another place to stay informed on all things tag grading. You can go to taggrading.com, check out the community tab to join either of those platforms. And Open up another browser, guys. You're hearing it right here first. There's going to be a flash tag rating drop happening in the next hour or so. Go to taggrading.com and check that out if you'd like to give it a try. And I certainly encourage you to do so. As always, I would like to thank all loyal viewers and listeners. If you're not yet subscribed to the channel, please take a moment and do so. And as always, although it's going to be a busy one tonight, your comments and questions are in play. So let's get to it, everybody. Tonight's guest, he sits at the helm of the card company that changed everything. 
back in 1989. He started working Upper Deck in 2006 and became the president in 2013 upon the passing of founder Richard McWilliam. Let's bring him out. Jason Mashara, welcome to Sports Cards Live again. How are you doing today? Great, Jeremy. Although I think I should have waited 13 episodes for 200, right? 200 is around the corner, my man. It is. Yeah, well, we'll see. I don't have anything planned for it yet, but we'll see what we end up doing. But how have you been in general? I mean, you you were on with me right after you guys announced the renewal of the hockey license, and um, how things been how things been going outside of the outside of what everybody knows. How are you? How's how's the business going? Well, the business is good. You know, it's still strong. The hobby's still strong. You know, we have seen a bit of a slowdown at retail. The there's nobody pulling guns in parking lots and and fighting over a uh, retail product at this point. Uh, but the hobby shops are still strong and, and we're trying to get product out as quickly as we can to feed it. Awesome. Awesome. So when, when we were chatting the other day, you mentioned that this is the first podcast you've ever done twice. Yep. I feel, I feel pretty honored by that. I want to thank you for that. Any, anything, uh, anything else going on for me from a podcast perspective? No, not really. You know, the, the thing, you know, we, we talked about a little bit, but you know, when I first got into this industry back in 06 and I started with upper deck, I, I saw a lot of executives doing a lot of talking, but you know, not delivering on all the promises. And, you know, I've tried to shy away a little bit from, you know, going out and making a lot of promises and doing a lot of talking and just try to stay you know, behind the guys that are there, build the products and, and make sure that they have a good environment to, build products and you know build the best products in the industry and do what they need to do and you know it's i think it's worked out pretty well for us good to hear good to hear so let's jump right in we've got a lot of topics to cover tonight some are very timely we actually had this we've had your appearance here scheduled i feel like it's been for two months now but when i heard about the lawsuit uh related to lord can i thought well this is very interesting timing we're definitely going to have to talk about that as well. We'll get to that shortly, but I want to talk about fanatics first. And, you know, a lot of people seem to, to wonder and assume almost that, you know, maybe fanatics is going to try to purchase upper deck. Uh, but I, I, so there's that, but also your general thoughts on, on fanatics and their entry into the hobby and what that means. But let's just jump right in and ask you like, has fanatics approached upper deck to purchase them is upper deck for sale? What can you tell us about that? Well, you know, ever since Richard passed away and the family took over ownership, we we haven't been for sale. There's been tons of rumors uh, that we've never engaged in a conversation. It's it's not even a topic that that we broach around here. Yes, everybody has inquired over the the ten years I've been running the company. It, there's just nothing to talk about. Okay, well, simple as that, and. Are you guys approached by other companies as well to be purchased? Like how how hot of a commodity is Upper Deck at like right now and over the even over the last twelve months or so? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we get phone calls from you know I would say venture capitalists and investment firms, private equity. Like there's always somebody calling because look, the reality is it's it's hard to get in and, and purchase sports based companies or or teams you know look how many teams are fighting over the ottawa senators right now it's it's just the industry in general and you know it's nice not being able to uh be distracted by those conversations we just you know we've never engaged 
since I've been around the company and we have no interest in engaging, you know, our, our goal is to, to continue to build the brand and, and do what's best for collectors. Why isn't Upper Deck for sale? It's really, it's built for the family. Um, you know, Richard left behind uh, a family with three young kids and, you know, the hope is that they'll take over the company someday and, and they'll essentially run the company. Okay. So, so until we hear otherwise, that is the, that is the situation. And those are the circumstances around. I have a question. This is a question that I actually received uh, a DM on Instagram. Someone wanted to know. So I'm going to ask you, it re, it's in respect to Michael Jordan and his deal with Upper Deck. The question, as I received it, I'm just going to read it verbatim, says, is Michael Jordan under a lifetime contract with Upper Deck? And if not, is his deal for at least the foreseeable future? Yeah, obviously, when it comes to any of our athlete deals or our licenses, I can't get into to details. The I think the the thing to point to is that, you know, we've had an exclusive deal with Michael Jordan since 1991. Uh, the DNA is definitely embedded uh, with Upper Deck and, and Michael Jordan. And, you know, we're looking forward to that maintaining for the foreseeable future. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean... I'm, I'm going to try to get as much information out of you as I can, but I understand that, I understand that you know, there's things that you're not going to be able to speak to. And I, I, you know, I hope the audience can, uh, can respect and understand that yeah. as well. And Jeremy, to, to go back to the ownership uh, question a, a little bit, you know, I think the, the best thing about working for the family is, you know, we're not trying to get to an IPO. We're not worried about a stock price. You know, we're not worried about getting to 10x or 20x for a private investment firm. You know, we're literally given the ability to make sure we're doing the best thing for the hobby and collectors. And I think that's a, a big piece of why people really enjoy working here is it is all about creating a great experience for collectors at the end of the day and nothing else. Okay. Well, appreciate that. Um, one more question. This is a, a really specific product type of question, but I've had some people ask me to ask you about Connor Bedard and his appearance in Upper Deck Series 1 or Series 2 this coming year as a young gun. Are you able to let us know and sort of confirm one way or the other? Will he, is the plan to have his young gun in Series 1 or Series 2? What can you say to that? So the way things have transpired now in order for us to get Upper Deck Series 1 out for the Expo, which is a big milestone for us and and very important to all the dealers and and the show itself. We really have to use kind of the end of season rookies from the prior year. So we can't wait until the rookies skate. And if people aren't familiar with hockey, you have to, the the player has to skate in order to, to make a card of them or a rookie card. Uh, so we don't have time to wait till the the season starts anymore to you know pepper them into UD Series One. So any of the rookies that skate at the beginning of the season, including Connor Bedard, will appear in UD Series Two. Okay, well, thank you for that. Let's talk about product delays for a moment and and uh, kind of where things are at. So where are things at? You know, several products have been delayed. We we finally saw twenty twenty the cup come out. There's still another season of that to come out before the current season can can come out um where are you guys at with sort of that catching up and how, how are you feeling about how do, how does upper deck feel about product delays i had a i had a couple of people message me in the last day and a half two days basically saying you know it's it's preposterous that, that that they can't get this card or that card yet and my response to one person was well I don't know. I mean, there was a pandemic. Maybe you heard about that. That set back a lot of things with 
supply chain, but I think some people don't aren't willing to accept that as a as an as a as a uh, reason anymore for better or for worse. What can you tell us about product delays and where we're at now? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look, quite frankly, I'm angry about where we're at. I know our staff is angry about where we're at. Uh, we are catching up quick, and you know, much to the detriment of. Uh, everybody involved there's a ton of product coming out over the next you know few months to to try to get caught up especially going into the 23 24 hockey card season we want to get as caught up as possible but i think there's a couple things that yeah we forget about we have a short memory and i think everybody's tired of hearing about the pandemic you know our our product are based on anywhere from 12 to 18 month cycles so they take a long time and when you get backed up you get backed up quite a, quite a ways and you know for hockey in particular versus the other sports you know we're not allowed to make cards of guys until they skate and we had two consecutive seasons where the season started late so it really put us behind for the two prior seasons and it just is taking a ton of time to catch up and unfortunately for hockey that backed up well it backed up all of our other products as well whether it's marvel aew you know some of the multi-sport products like goodwin and metal champs so it just became a domino i think we're still quite a ways away from getting back on normal schedule but i do think over the next six months you're going to see us make a ton of progress and we'll all be a lot happier where things are at okay yeah you mentioned aew i had another person reach out to me to ask you about AEW and ask why they keep getting delayed. Several 2022 products are still not out. Is that that domino effect of catching up on everything and having printer capacity at the at the third party vendors? Yeah, and you know, there are so many different aspects that obviously we don't share about what has backed up things. So uh, not only was hockey backed up because the two prior seasons had started late, um, but people forget the movie studios were closed down for months and months as well, which set anything that had to do with television or movies way back, which is why, you know, we're still trying to get caught up on the Marvel uh, movies and television products, as well as some of the other properties that, that we have rights to. So everything just got caught up in one big jumble across the board. And, you know, it's disappointing. You know, we're very disappointed. We thought we'd be farther into AEW products. We have some great products coming out. We've got Allure. We've got Metal Universe AEW, which we're all looking forward to. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff coming. It's just it's a matter of getting to it. So your message to the hobby and, and your fans and customers who want these products right now would be what? <laughs> it's hard, but continue to be patient. You're going to see a ton of stuff get caught up over the next six months or so, but I still think it's going to be another good solid 12 months plus till we're completely caught up on everything. And back to the regular cycle that you were at pre pandemic. Yeah. Let's talk about autograph wrangling for a moment. Uh, Carlos B. Good put this in the in the chat a few minutes ago. Will Kirill Kaprizov ever sign up her deck cards again? Why don't you just answer that question specifically, and then we'll talk a bit more about the wrangling of autographs. Well, it, look, uh, Kaprizov is a is a good example. So, so on top of everything else we've dealt with, uh, the last two rookie classes have been horrific to collect autographs from. Uh, Kaprizov just completely flaked on our autograph deal. Um, and you know, he had some travel issues. There was some back and forth with Russia. Again, things we don't think about normally as collectors, but you know, you have Russian players that are caught up 
in a war right now and politics and things of that nature. So their mind is other places. The 21-22 class of rookies has been really tough. Probably the worst uh, group of rookies to, to wrangle, to, to sign, to use your term, since 1516. Uh, so those have delayed products as well, getting autographs in. Those guys have struggled. Whether Kaprizov will ever sign again, you know, it's hard to say. You know, some of these guys go through phases on whether they want to sign or not. We've seen guys, you know, disappear for years and then come back and be great signers. Uh, but, you know, I, I wouldn't say it will happen in the, the near future. The, the other thing that's really interesting uh, for those people who collect hockey cards on a regular basis we have seen a trend with Russian players in general. And I think there's something that they just maybe don't understand about signing autographs. You know, we saw this with baseball, with the Japanese players. Many of the Japanese players culturally felt that they hadn't earned the right to be paid for their autograph yet. So there's something in the, in the history of, of Russian players where we've really struggled with them over the years. So you wonder if it's something cultural, whether it was Tarasenko or Panarin. These guys have always been really hard to get to actually sign their autographs. Yeah, that makes sense. And when we think about the other sports, you think about Tops and Panini and, and you know, the challenges they have or maybe the, the, the different challenges. Is, is there anything else that you can say that kind of differentiates Upper Deck's ability to get autographs versus Tops and Panini and, you know, baseball, basketball, football? Or is, it, is the only key difference the fact that in hockey – a player needs to skate or be dressed for an NHL team uh, in a regular season game in order to be eligible by the PA and the league to have a card. Yeah, I think that's the biggest difference. So with the other sports, they start collecting autographs as soon as, soon as they declare to be professional. So, you know, in basketball, you'll in football, you'll see guys autographs in in product before they even get drafted. And some of them don't even get drafted. Right. So baseball, the guys essentially start autographing as soon as they're eligible to go into the minor leagues, and then they sign for the next 15 years, whether they make the, the major leagues or not. In hockey, they have to skate in a professional NHL game, and we can't make cards of them until they skate in an NHL game. Okay. All right. So we've got, I'm, I'm keeping my eyes on the comments, everybody, but unlike most episodes, I'm not going to get to just about all of them as I usually do. But Jason, we're going to go to a few uh, questions that have come in that I think are are good ones here. Justin Vick here says there's been a lot of talk about fanatics signing exclusive autograph contracts with athletes. Has that affected the way Upper Deck approaches these relationships? No, you know we've we've had our issues with exclusive contracts by other companies for years, so we approach it exactly the same. And and look, the the reality is. If another company comes in and they're going to be willing to really pay uh, a lot of money for uh, a contract, whether it makes sense or not, there's not much you can do about it. Okay. Carlos here says, will you let breakers in North America break your newer products without a license? I was told you had to be officially licensed breaker by Upper Deck in order to break new product. Okay. So that's a great question. So here's the reality of the situation. I, I think they're whoever's giving uh, Carlos that advice is getting a couple things confused. So we have uh, what we call our certified diamond dealer program, which authorizes brick and mortar stores. So you have to be a brick and mortar store in order to get upper deck 
product, new upper deck product, which is a is vastly different than every other trading card company out there. Uh, from there, we actually have authorized internet retailers who are allowed to sell products for a period of time after a new product releases. They have kind of an exclusive window. We also have an authorized group breaker pro program where we kind of give guys a, a stamp of approval. We know they have brick and mortar stores. They're, they're reputable. They've been breaking a long time. There are tons of breakers out there that break product that are not authorized group breakers. Um, a lot of them are, are just hobbyists. They're, they're guys that are, are doing it with their friends or, or a group. You know, we can't stop anybody from breaking product. So, you know, you want to go buy a, a case of product or a box of product from your local brick and mortar hobby store and you want to break it, you know, you can go out and break it. But you're, you're going to have to get it from, uh, from one of our certified diamond dealers. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Another uh, question from Carlos. Why is the hockey market in the USA growing so slowly? Why is Upper Deck not encouraging United States breakers to open your products? And again, this might be a, a question with that isn't exactly accurate in the way it's stated, but I'll let you address it nonetheless. Yeah, so I, I think it depends on what you're, you're looking at, Carlos. So we've opened a, a pretty big number of brick and mortar hobby stores, new brick and mortar hobby stores as certified diamond dealers over the last several years, uh, especially through the pandemic. And we've seen some, some stores finally start to open in, in the United States. Uh, as far as breakers, I think it's just because it's not the wild, wild west with our product. You know, you have to go to a certified diamond dealer to get new product. And that's probably what you're seeing is it's a, it's a little more streamlined uh, with uh, the Upper Deck product than other companies. Okay. All right. Uh, here's another one. Justin Vick says, I saw that Upper Deck is launching an AEW tabletop card game in August. Do you see tabletop games being a big revenue stream for Upper Deck? So long before I even came to Upper Deck, Upper Deck has has been in the gaming space, in particular the trading card games. And and you know whether you call it tabletop trading card games, we do some board games as well. Uh, when I took over the company slightly before, we actually restarted the games division in 2012. We launched a, a game called Legendary, which has a lot of different flavors to it. We started it with Marvel. Uh, we also relaunched the Versus system, which has a long tradition here at Upper Deck. And it is a big part of, of Upper Deck, and we expect it to be even bigger going forward. Okay, well, and there you go, Justin. Hockey Cards Up says, thank you both for doing this. Your thoughts on doing more promotions with the NHL to grow the hobby, for example? I had an idea of giving away packs to everyone at the Winter Classic. Well, Hockey Cards Up, we're, we're right there with you. We're actually one of the few, if not the only company that activates at every single NHL event, no matter where it is all over the globe. So we are giving away and setting up in the European games. We were there in China. We set up at the Winter Classic, the Stadium Series, the All-Star Game. We're the title sponsor of the draft. Uh, we're at every type of big NHL event, and we are giving away cards, doing uh, personalized cards where people can come and create their cards. A lot of times we actually bring local brick and mortar hobby stores to the event so that they can sell cards at the event so we're already there okay all right there you go hockey cards up all right a couple of questions came in uh regarding autographs again case hits read very specific question is it possible to explain the change back and forth with stutzla's autograph it was a nice full auto then on the cup it was ts18 and now in previews back to full autos did upper deck 
tell him or ask him to improve his order. And the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this question on, because I know it's so specific and you may not know the details, but the question that I'd like you to answer, if, unless you, if you don't, if you can't answer this specifically is how, how much influence does Upper Deck have on the quality of the autograph? Do you guys at the, at autograph signings, do you actually try to encourage players to provide a more, a nicer, fuller autograph versus than some of the pretty, you know, sh- small autographs we've seen across all sports over the last few years honestly it depends on the relationship with the the athlete and the agent um you know some athletes take better to feedback than others some i gotta be honest like we just want to get their autographs so they don't end up as redemptions or you know we can get the autographs back and fulfill the redemptions so it really depends on on the athlete and kind of the relationship that our reps have when they go out and do the signings so, you know, it's all over the board. I think, you know, we mostly concentrate on our exclusive athletes or our spokespeople and make sure, you know, we're getting as good of an autograph out of them as possible. And it's, it's nice when you can point those athletes and say, look at Gretzky's autograph, look at Tiger's autograph, look at Jordan's autograph. Like they were the best of all time at their sport, but they're also the best all time of their autographs as well. So, you know, use that as an example going forward as you're thinking about your autograph. Yeah, I think I think that's a great way to put it to them, and also Sidney Crosby. You didn't even—he's as a modern, current right. player. He's got a, a beautiful autograph. Seems to take a lot of pride in it. And Chad Shipper says, if a player breaks a contract for signing, are there any repercussions on their end? So let let me—I don't think we answered the Stutzla question. That one, I don't know. Uh, I don't know directly. Um, you know, maybe we can find out, but uh, I don't know that one. Just to, to kind of close the loop on that one. Uh, you. you know, the, the, the issue with players breaking their contracts is there really isn't a lot of repercussions. I mean, the, it, it really becomes trying to just have a good relationship with these guys to get them to do the, the contract. Because if it gets, if there's any animosity or bad blood, then they may never sign again, which is counter to what all collectors want. They want to see more autographs of their favorite players. So it's a delicate balance. Like you, you would like to be really tough with these guys, uh, but you, you want them to continue to sign with you at the the same time. So it, it's tough. There are, there are always repercussions in the, in the contract. The question is, is how, how much do you want to enforce them with the players? Yeah, that, that would be a tough, uh, a tough thing to balance there for sure. Matt at the essential credentials, will we eventually get more behind the scenes videos of players signing cards or, or stickers, I suppose. Yeah, you know, we've got we've got a new director of marketing who's uh, very intent on getting more access to the players uh, and more video content. You know, I think the hardest part when it comes to videos of the players is we don't always know when they're going to be available to sign. Literally, it could be 24 hours notice, 48 hours notice, uh, and they'll just, you know, we'll have to get stuff to them immediately. And that doesn't give you enough time to get a film crew ready or get the proper equipment there to, to do the signing. But I know it's definitely on the horizon and we've got some great access to players, even besides the NHL players. Uh, you know, I, I had a great meeting with the, the CFL uh, Players Association and their players, and they want to be more active in this space and, and they're collect, you know, some of those guys are collectors and, you know, they want to, you know, be able to, to show everybody how great the signing process is and, you know, what it's like and what it means to those guys. Yeah. Okay, good. Let's uh, let's talk about, you mentioned a, a bit earlier about supporting hobby shops. 
Um, what does that entail? What is, when you say that, what do you mean by, you know, we're supporting hobby shops? Well, I think, you know, the first and foremost, the, the big thing is, is that, you know, we only sell to brick and mortar hobby shops. You know, the people who are putting the investment in, they're paying rent, they're paying utilities, you know, lights, you know, they're, they're spending money on showcases and, and merchandising displays. You know, those are the ones that we want to support because they have a heavy investment in the hobby. You also don't have to worry about them ghosting you when they, you know, they, they take advantage of somebody on a, on a deal. Like they're not going to mess with people because you can show up at their shop and confront them face to face. Right. So, you know, we only sell to brick and mortar hobby stores. Uh, our hobby product is, is exclusive to them. And then from there, you know, we have several co-op programs. So first and foremost, uh, we launched about 10 years ago, we launched a program that gives matching funds to hobby stores to uh, essentially improve their store. So if they need to, you know, change out their carpeting, their lighting, their showcases, uh, buy breaking tables, things of that nature. We have matching funds for anything to help improve a, a hobby store internally. We have a, a matching funds for in, website improvement. You know, a lot of these websites definitely need to to be improved. We've we've seen a lot of pro progress over the years, but you know, a lot of these shops, you know, they're not experts. They're not internet experts. They're not website experts. So we have matching funds to help them hire somebody. Uh, to help improve their websites. And then we also have a, a large pot of money, um, $25,000 of matching funds for any shop that wants to open up additional shops. And we're a big believer that the brick and mortar hobby store is the billboard for the industry. And we want to see as many as possible. And we'll, we'll match those funds uh, to help people start, you know, new, new stores. And then beyond that, our, our standard co-op you know, we match funds for advertising for shops. Uh, a lot of them sponsor, you know, junior hockey teams or youth sports. We match those funds if they want to do any online advertising, if they want to bring players into the store or host an event. Uh, simple things like branded bags, uh, signs out front of the store, you know, window displays. We match funds for all that stuff for our brick and mortar hobby stores. So we support our hobby stores any way, shape or form we can. And since I've been here at Upper Deck for 17 years, we're the only company that has those type of programs to help the brick and mortar hobby store. Well, yeah, that's definitely support supporting them. Um, I've heard some hobby shop owners express their frustration with EPAC, the EPAC platform, your direct-to-consumer sales channel there. Um, how, do you, how do you respond to that? And then, and then I want to get into uh, the, a new EPAC exclusive product coming up, which I think uh, being FLIR Ultra, which I think is, an, is sort of an additional frustration for some hobby shops because they don't have access to it and customers are going straight to Upper Deck to purchase them. So can you address that, please? Well, look, the when we started EPAC back in 2016, it was with a couple of key, you know, key tenants. And one was based on my prior experience living in Bloomington, Indiana, where I didn't have a hobby shop within 90 minutes of me. You know, I'm a hobby guy. I wanted hobby content and I couldn't get it. And there are a number of people, no matter how many hobby shops we have now, that still live quite a ways away from hobby shops. And they don't want to have to go online and wait, you know, three days to get a shipment. And maybe they're not comfortable with breaking. Uh, I, I'm not 
I'm not a breaker. I don't, I don't enjoy breaking. I, I enjoy opening product. So, you know, that was kind of the first tenant is we wanted people to be able to access hobby level product wherever they live, not only in the U.S. and Canada, but all over the globe. You know, again, we're spoiled here in North America. There are a lot of displaced connect, uh, collectors all over the globe that don't have access to a hobby store and, and people forget that. Uh, so, you know, we see military who are stationed all over the, the globe that have access to hobby product at a moment's notice, which is which is nice. Uh, the second piece was, you know, we're not putting all of our product on there and we're the only company that continues to only sell our biggest and best hobby product exclusively to hobby stores. SP Authentic isn't on EPAC. The Cup isn't on EPAC. And the other companies can't say the same, that they're not selling some of the most sought after products on their online platforms. And then the third piece was when we started this, uh, our competitors at the time were creating digital trading card apps. And the message at the time was somewhat disturbing from our standpoint was that, hey, you don't need physical trading cards. We're just gonna do trading card apps and that's gonna be the future of the hobby. And we viewed it completely different. We viewed it as we need to blend digital and physical together. So we need to allow people to collect virtually and open virtually, but still have real physical cards. And we've seen it, essentially everything grow together. So ever since we started EPAC, the hobby channel has grown, the EPAC channel has grown, and the mass retail channel has grown all together and incrementally. Um, so it's for us, it's worked. It's been our strategy uh, again, you know, yeah, I can understand at some points that hobby stores would be frustrated, but I, I think we do more and our strategy protects the brick and mortar store than any of our competitors. Yeah. So again, I guess they're, you're, you're supporting them in, in some very strong and effective ways, but, but then they're seeing the, the EPAC or the EPAC exclusive product like FLIR Ultra, which is about to, to come out. And uh, I think perhaps they're getting frustrated with that, but, but maybe forgetting about some of the other things that you're doing. Um, but I still, I still understand their frustration, but I yeah. do also understand that not everybody is within a, a convenient drive to an LCS, you know? So well and again, so again, our memories are all short. You know, a lot of the products that went on to EPAC were longstanding hobby brands. And quite frankly, at the time when they went on to EPAC, they were brands that were not the most sought after brands at the time. You know, Ultimate Collection, SPX, SP Game Used are good brands, but they weren't the best performers when they went on to EPAC back in 2016, 2017. Um, you know, Again, you, we have we have announced we're going to do Fleer Ultra. Fleer Ultra was a brand that overwhelmingly we were told to get rid of years and years ago. And our hope is is bringing it back on EPAC will allow us to bring it back in, in a way that people are excited about. But the hobby, you know, the in the hobby shops and the distributors overwhelmingly rejected that product several years ago. So. You know, we're hoping to, to bring that that product back. Uh, we have Parkhurst is on the system as well. Um, again, wasn't really a well-loved brand by the, the hobby stores uh, for years and years. We, we brought that to, to EPAC. And, you know, there's there's another brand or two that are, are coming. And our hope is to revive some of these brands that had gone away over the years. 
I love that. I, I've been lobbying with uh, some of your uh, product managers to bring back a FLIR product in hockey because I can understand that maybe 10 years ago, you guys were advised by your, your salespeople, card shops, maybe that wasn't worth bringing back, but things have changed. That FLIR brand, I think, is so important to the hobby. It's beloved, especially with the the uprising and the uh, for 90s FLIR cards and Skybox cards. So I'm glad it's back. Is is bringing back Flare Ultra as an EPAC exclusive? Is it is it is the EPAC exclusive nature of it somewhat of an experiment to see how it does and how an EPAC exclusive product will work? Yeah, look, I think nothing's nothing's out of the realm of possibility. We this is really our first EPAC exclusive big hobby hockey brand, and it is a bit of an experiment. And look, there are there have been hobby exclusive brands that we've brought to EPAC. There's been retail exclusive brands that we've brought to EPAC. There's nothing saying that we can't, you know, bring an EPAC exclusive brand back to the hobby at at some point for sure. Justin Vick just says it's really good to hear the rationale for some of these issues. Thanks to Jason for coming on the show, uh, and thank you, Justin, uh, for that comment as well. Um, Another question. This has to do with with, uh, with LCS's card shop. Sports La Tornade says, "Why do you use distributors and not deal directly with your diamond dealers?" So again, I think it's a that's a bit of a miscon- uh, misconception. So here in the U.S., we have a lot of direct accounts. Um, internationally, including Canada, we do go through distributors because it, it creates a lot of international trade issues, tariffs, taxes, customs, shipping, things of that nature. Um, So we do use uh, distributors for our our certified diamond dealers internationally, but we do have direct accounts here in the United States. Okay. Well, I think, I mean, it's oftentimes we as the hobby assume so much, we assume so much. And we just think that, you know, we even, we even often have a, an entitled uh, attitude. You know, we all do. I think a lot of, a lot of the hobby does. So it's really, it is really nice to get some of these reasons out there. So thanks. Thanks for that, Jason. Um, we're getting, we got, we got, we still have lots to talk about tonight, <laughs> but I want, there's been some really good questions that have been coming through uh, and I don't want to lose some of them. Carlos here wanted to know, we're, we're just going to, the question here is going to be, do you plan on releasing a higher end product than the cup for hockey in the future? Well, look at the end of the day, if you're a hockey fan, there's only one end goal and that's the cup. Uh, the cup will always be the highest brand. Uh, I think what you've seen is is we have, you know, slowly started to elevate the price on the cup. That allows us to bring some more higher end products below it. Always having the cup as the highest end. You know, we've seen uh, with other sports and other licenses where you know the highest end product got leapfrogged by another product. You know, for us, it's important to keep the consistency of the cup of always being the highest end brand. And I don't think that will ever change for us. We like consistency. That's why you don't see brands typically shuffle in and out of our lineup. You know, we want people to know that their brands are coming back year over year if they they like it. Uh, it does make it hard to experiment sometimes with new brands, uh, but we've been able to do that over the last few years. But we like consistency, and, and the cup is the end goal for anybody in hockey, and that's that's the way we view it. Yeah, and, and even the way you guys seed Exquisite into various products is another high-end brand with right. some great equity attached to it going back to 2003. So I like that you do that as well. Um, 
Talking about international, as you just mentioned, Sean Robb says, how are sales going in Europe and Asia? What are some of the best European countries for sales? So it's interesting, uh, believe it or not, you know, Europe, we're seeing growth, but in certain areas, we've seen a huge slowdown due to the war. Um, I think, again, we're, we're a bit sheltered here in North America. Energy costs are out of control in Europe. Inflation is even worse there in some areas than here. Uh, so a lot of European collectors have had to make some hard choices about paying normal daily expenses versus collecting. Uh, but, you know, we still see some growth, just not as much as we had over prior years before the, the war started in Europe. Uh, for us, it's always the northern countries, especially the, the hockey countries. So Germany, the Czech Republic, the Nordic, Sweden, Finland, you know, anywhere you see a hockey player kind of originate from Switzerland. Uh, those do really well. Asia has been really strong as well. Uh, and again, you know, we've seen growth of hockey in those countries. I'd like to see more, uh, but any of the countries that trade or, or collect cards uh, do really well with hockey. And I think what you're going to see is we saw a huge spike in demand in 2015 and 2016 with Connor and Austin. I think you're going to see a huge spike in demand in Asia this year with Bedard coming in uh, if he if he performs like everybody hopes he is on that really bad Blackhawks team. For sure. I, I definitely hear you on that one. I, it's, it's a very exciting time. Is it is the Connor Bedard year? Does it bring back memories of the Connor McDavid year? And does, does it bring back memories of the Sidney Crosby year, which was a dual year back in 0506? Well, I think it's different scenarios, and and I joke about the Blackhawks. Obviously, you know it's going to be really fascinating to see what they do in the off season with that roster. You know, Connor came in after that team was loading year after year with top draft picks, um, so he came into a, a team that you know was built for some type of success. And obviously, we're still waiting for the Oilers to win the cup. Um, so they haven't got all the way where uh, either Upper Deck or, or Connor wants to get. Um, but that roster was a little more stacked. Uh, and I would say the same thing with Sydney. Uh, that team was a little bit more talented when the Blackhawks uh, are right now. That's why I think, I, it, it, to me, it's the most intriguing thing in the offseason right now is to see what the Blackhawks organization does to build around you know, Bedard going forward to, to give him some help. That's exactly what I was saying when, uh, when the lottery, the draft lottery was completed. It's like, well, now, now it's going to come down to management and obviously, you know, attracting free agent talent to Chicago won't be an issue like it is for a lot of Canadian markets and a few U S markets, but it's really going to put them to the test and see how they can really exploit him, especially in his earlier years and see how, how they'll be able to do. Joe Pearl wants to know, is Tiger Woods still under contract with Upper Deck? And if so, how frequently does he sign? So yes, Tiger is still an exclusive spokesman for Upper Deck. Uh, honestly, with Tiger, his signing is all over the board, uh, depending on you know what injuries he's fighting. And obviously he's been kind of tied up with politics as far as golf the last couple of years. But you know, whenever he frees up, we we sit down and, and get cards signed with him or, or memorabilia. All right. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Thank you, Joe, for the question. All right. Let's, uh, and, and just to the audience out there, I, I am uh, marking a lot of your questions that I'm going to bring up 
when we move to that topic. So you don't need to double post your questions. <laughs> and if I'm not bringing them up, we're just not going to address them tonight. But uh, if it's a topic that we've already talked about, so we will be addressing a lot of those comments as we move forward here. All right. One of the things that that uh, that I put in the description and let people know we'd be talking about are conflicts of interest within the industry. Um, I'm I'm just going to let you speak to that first, and then I maybe have a few specific things. But you know what it, what what do you see as conflicts of interest in our industry? And notice I've switched now from calling it a hobby to the industry because yeah. you know my opinion. The hobby is a business. The hobby is an industry and the hobby aspect of it just lives within that because it's a multi-billion dollar industry. If we're, if we're really thinking about it. a lot of people say it's not a hobby anymore. Well, it's up to every individual hobbyist to decide if it's a hobby for them. It's not, it, it doesn't really matter what's going on around you. You can make it a hobby if you want to, or you can just get frustrated and think that this is just a, a big business, which it is as well. And I understand some of those frustrations with that. I am saying, what are some of the conflicts of, in of interest or how do you view conflicts of, of interest within the industry? Yeah, so those, those, of, uh, those that are around me on a regular basis know I have pretty strong feelings about this. You know, I, I think for us in this industry, uh, not even conflicts of interest, perceived conflicts of interest are issues in this industry because there have been so many controversies over the years that we've all seen collectors, shop owners, uh, even working for the manufacturers, uh, that I, I, I have strong feelings about conflicts of interest. And, and we're in this weird era now where the consolidation has created massive conflicts of interest in this industry. You know, we've got the, the biggest grading firm also owns a, a pricing company and an auction house. Um, we have the biggest, you know, arguably trading card company. If not now, they will be in a few years that now owns a secondary marketplace. They're going to have live shopping. Most anticipate that they're going to get in grading as well. And it creates some issues. And particularly, I have very strong feelings that manufacturer, anybody who makes a collectible in general, should never have control of the secondary marketplace. There's just too many ways to manipulate things or reasons to manipulate things that create temptation. Even if it's not an intent to have a conflict of interest, you're putting people in position to potentially do things that create a conflict of interest. And it just never ends up well. We've seen this time and time again uh, throughout sports and collectibles in general. If you look at what happened at FanDuel and DraftKings, you had employees placing bets that had access to data and they were running the table and, and they could see, you know, which fantasy lineups, daily fantasy lineups would win. And, and it was huge controversy and lawsuits over that. We saw this in the NFT market with OpenSea where employees had knowledge of what NFTs were going to be hot and what were going to drop ahead of time. And they were buying them and making a fortune um, in the secondary marketplace when, when the stuff dropped. You know, we see this in, in uh, Europe with uh, some of the, the NFT sites over there where guys are manipulating and monopolizing marketplaces. Um, and look, we know auction houses in particular are ripe for shill bidding and fake sales and things. We see it even on eBay, which is probably the most safeguarded uh, of all the marketplaces with the technology and the longstanding things. There's just, there's so many 
ways for things to go wrong and put a stain on this industry that, you know, I feel very strongly about conflicts of interest in this industry. So Carlos put this up there. He says, is Upper Deck fearful of Fanatics growing monopoly in the sports market? And I've been saying it, it's not a, it's, 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 it's a monopoly on basketball cards, football cards, and baseball cards, but it's not a monopoly overall. Even if they have other uh, businesses under their umbrella, it's simply a vertical integration. It is, it is, it's not a monopoly except in the area of baseball, football, and basketball cards, because there are going to be other pricing tools. There's going to be other grading companies. There's other marketplaces, tons of yeah. those, uh, breaking operations. So I don't think the word monopoly really apply. It, it technically applies, but it's a convenient, easy thing for people to say. Um, so, you know, is, is there the reason I'm bringing up Carlos's question here, because it kind of ties into this conflict of interest, a concern that you have, what do you like, you, you say you feel strongly about it. What do you see the damage potentially being uh, of, of the way that things are looking to be set up here in the future? Well, look, I, I think, you know, there's two levels to it, right? There's what's happening in our industry and then sports licensed products overall um with what's happening with with fanatics and, and look good business people big company they're going to do what they're going to do um the damage as far as uh collectibles look we're, we're seeing this right now i i would the the prime example is cryptocurrency and nfts you know the the governments are all starting to crack down and eliminate it you know essentially cryptocurrency exchanges are going away. I mean, the, the SEC sent a pretty strong message this last week. And why is that? It's because there was a lot of bad acting and conflicts of interest in that industry. You know, at, the gambling industry is heavily regulated. Um, sports sports fantasy leagues are, are heavily re regulated and illegal in some states. You know, there could be some really dire consequences. And not only that, the, the reality is what I'm always most fearful about in our industry in particular, whether it's this issue or issues in general, if collectors have bad experiences, it's very easy for them to find other places to spend their money, right? Like, the, I mean, and, and even in collectibles, they can move to other industries like comic books or art or things of that nature. So if you create an environment that they don't trust, you're going to lose them and the industry is going to shrink. It's a problem. Okay. Well, I, I hear you loud and clear. Uh, James here says, is it a conflict that the NFL MLB and players associations have equity ownership stakes in fanatics? I, look, I, I think the, the issue there is that there is no reason for them to ever look at another licensee. So I'm kind of answering it without answer. I mean, it's just, there's, there's no reason for them to ever consider another licensee, no matter how good they are, or what they're doing. Which is sort of a, a monopolistic in nature to a right. degree. Yeah. Uh, Tabletop Gamer says regarding conflicts of interest, how does that apply to serially numbered cards? What does Upper Deck do to assure that no one knows where the biggest, most valuable one of one and other cards are? And the reason why, you know, this, question is very timely is because there are all sorts of of accusations and narrative on social media on hobby social media about uh loaded boxes going to certain outlets to be 
to be uh, broadcast upon opening. And look, wonderful card. This is good for marketing. Um, I'm going to ask you two questions here. Uh, so we have Tabletop Gamers question, first of all. But also, do you think that there are loaded boxes going to certain people so that for, for marketing purposes or or other? So look, I can't I can't speak to the the way the other companies handle their business. Uh, what I know is that it's it's very hard um, with the way we mix the product to know where anything is, quite frankly. Um, and it's all done out of house. It's done in, in another manufacturer's facility. Essentially, we give instructions. The cards all go to them. They mix it. We have no idea what's going, you know, where. Um, and, you know, we do a couple of case checks to make sure the mix is proper uh, on every product run that we do. Uh, but we have no idea where any of that stuff ends up. And I'll, I'll give you a story um, just from personal experience. Back when I first started with the company, I was running uh, baseball and basketball at the time. Um, we had, you know, it's very traditional in this industry for media outlets to get sample boxes uh, of product to talk about them and and give some breakdown of what they see. And I will never forget the horror from our football team when Beckett busted a box of exquisite and hit the one of one Adrian Peterson shield card before the product released. It was not intentional. And I'll tell you, it was uh, watching those guys deal with the fallout of that was terrible because it basically before the product ever released, ruin the chase the, the the number one card in the product went to a media outlet nobody planned that nobody wanted that right but it happened um completely fluke completely accident um but unfortunately that's the risk you run when you send boxes out to to media um so even if you don't plan um or send loaded boxes somebody can get a, a box with the best hits just randomly. It's just the way it was. Cause there's no, if you think about it, there's no upside for us to send Beckett, Jeremy Lee, um, you know, hockey show, hockey gong show, like anybody, the best cards. Cause it only ends up in disaster for us in the product. So, you mentioned that, you know, you don't really know where any of this stuff is going, right. you're using third party vendors. How confident are you? What sort of comfort can the hobby have? What sort of controls are there that there's no funny business going on at these third-party vendors themselves if, it, if it's not going to be upper deck? Well, you know, look, the, the funny business, if any, is when you have a rogue employee that maybe grabs some cards here and there, and that happens from time to time. I mean, it's just a fact. We, we've seen it throughout the years. It's disappointing. Those people end up costing themselves their job in the end because it's pretty easy to to track down um there are detailed logs of you know who's working and you know what cards are running when essentially um so we've dealt with it over the years as have all the manufacturers so there's you know that's what you deal with you don't deal with typically uh people loading boxes or loading cases typically you you deal with you know, somebody trying to get away with a couple of cards here and there along the way. Okay. All right. Well, thank you to uh, Tabletop Gamer. And I'll just, a lot, uh, lot of new names in the chat, lots of viewers here tonight. So I want to thank everybody for joining the episode. Thank you, Jason, for making the time and 
coming over. We still have a few things to get to, including the Lorcana, which I know we have a lot of people waiting for us to talk about that, which we're going to get to very soon. But I'd like to ask everyone who is here, if you're new to Sports Cards Live, uh, that is this channel here on YouTube, please take a moment, throw a subscribe at us, and uh, we'll be grateful to hopefully see you back here again in the future. Um, all right, I'm going to, before we do Lorcana, which we're going to be getting to, a couple more questions that have come in through the chat a little bit earlier that I want to I wanna bring up for you, uh, Jason. Um, Paul Lesko here says, are you monitoring the LeBron RPA litigation against card porn slash golden auctions? And if you can discuss, what is Upper Deck's view on the litigation and or the LeBron rookie patch auto? Yeah, I've, I've got to admit, I, I haven't been involved. I haven't paid attention to it. Um, you know, we, we have our hands full in other, other places that, that I am involved in, and that's kind of what I've been paying attention to. Okay, Sorry, so Paul. Can't help you on that one. Jake Dahl says, is Upper Deck going to get and put in more vintage hockey game used memorabilia from, you know, the, the vintage era, 1910s through 1970s? Well, I would love to, uh, but it just isn't available. That's that's the reality. I mean, we even have problems coming up with 80s stuff anymore. That's why you don't see a ton of Gretzky game-used jersey cards, you know, Lemieux uh, game-used jersey cards, Messier game-used jersey cards. I mean, we really have to limit uh, where we put those because real ones just are not very much available. Yeah, that's. Uh, I figured that might have been a big part of your response. Uh, okay, and then Case Hits Read. This is a question I'm very passionate about. He says, are there any plans to increase patch swap prevention? I know there's been an uptick recently. I think there are plenty of ways to help fight this issue. Worried about Connor Bedard. Do you mind addressing? And and you you may or may not know, Jason, in 2009, I'm, I think I'm one of only two non-Upper Deck employees to ever uh, be present at an Upper Deck, the Cup packout in North Carolina. And I, I, I came there uh, on my own time and my own dime to photograph the images of all the patch cards from that product, which I did alongside your, your packout team. Uh, this is before you were the president of the company, well before that. But, um, you know, I've always been passionate about that because I think it's, uh, I think it's, it, there's risk there. So uh, what, what are your thoughts on sort of patch swapping of important cards and even not important cards uh, are we ever going to see a digital photo archive? And, uh, and if not, and, and, and why haven't we yet? I would say. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm going to give you a little shout out here, Jeremy. So much like how it took like 10 years to launch tag, it's kind of the same thing that we're going through with trying to get to a point where patch authentication gets done across the board. So, uh, it is in process, but it is pain fit, painstakingly slow, and I have no anticipation on being able to give everybody a date or a time when that's going to, to go live. Uh, but I assure you that that conversation is happening on a daily, weekly, monthly basis on how we get to a point where everybody can be confident that the card that they have is is authentic and the, and the patch on the card or the jersey piece is authentic as well. So I'm, I'm going to be honest, personally, I appreciate the answer, but I don't, I don't sense the urgency. I feel this is more urgent than I'm hearing from you right now. So can, like, is it urge? Is this an urgent? Is this a top? Is this a high priority for upper deck? I feel like the future value of cards is someone of some cards, important cards is somewhat reliant on this. 
So can you just sort of appease me a little bit by maybe at least letting us know how important this is to you or the urgency thereof? Well, for us, you know, we're at a point now where we're not concerned about people counterfeiting our cards per se, uh, especially, you know, we still do our anti-counterfeit holograms and the level of technology and the printing that we do is, is kind of unrivaled. Our biggest issue, honestly, is patch and jersey swapping by far. Um, we're well aware of it. Um, we, you know, we're the company known for authenticating and authenticating services. Um, basically, every memorabilia company that authenticates has stolen or copied our, our authentication process over the years. Um, but we need to get to a point where we can accommodate for every single jersey card and patch card that we put out. And it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a high volume. And I know most people are concerned about, you know, the key rookie RPA patch for the cup every year. Um, but the, the problem's much bigger than that. I mean, it is monumental. It's a it's a big issue. Um, and, you know, we want to get to a point where we don't care if, you know, it's a fourth line D-man jersey card. We want people to be able to to verify it. And again, we know that's not what people are concerned about as far as patch swapping, but that's the way we're treating it, is that every card is treated equal and you'll be able to have the confidence that every single patch and jersey card is the original one and be able to verify that. Yeah, I think that'll be a big win for the hobby and I think that'll uh, be an important uh, bit of progress towards ensuring the future value of these cards, which sell for a lot of money on the secondary market uh, for not all, not all of them do, but many of them sell for, as we all know, uh, really, really big bucks. Um, okay. Well, thanks for that. And I uh, appreciate you uh, letting me give you the gears a little bit on, on that one. Um, no, I mean, look, it's, it's a big issue, especially on, on key RPA rookie cards like the cup. And, you know, when we get to the point where we can get where we need to go, that's obviously going to be the first step is going to be the cup and then to work our way back. There's no doubt about it. I think that makes sense. I think I, I'm glad to hear that you recognize it. It isn't just the cup RPAs out of 99. It's, right. it's all patch cards because if, if you take those away from, from the bad actors, they'll just go down a step right. and find what, right. So they're, they're just going to keep on chasing that low hanging fruit until there's none left. So right. uh, I think it has to be, really a comprehensive solution that addresses the whole, all product lines, all memorabilia cards, and some way for the hobby to go to an app and just verify whether, you know, get the get a picture from Upper Deck of what that card looked like at production out of the pack to make sure that it's still what it looks like today when they're purchasing it on an online marketplace or live at a card show or at a local card shop. So, all right, let's, uh, let's ease our way into the, into the Lorcana issue. And uh, we're going to do that by starting with uh, Tabletop Gamer here says, when will we see a release of Rush of, and I don't know how you say that, is it Ikor? Yeah, it's it's Ikor. There's actually supposed to be, um, I believe, two R's instead of uh, two O's there. So it's Rush of Ikor. When will we see a release of that? So Rush of Ikor will hit in 2024. 20, there you go, Tabletop Gamer. And uh, GG Keezy says, will Upper Deck commit to transparency in the event that the Ravensburger lawsuit is settled out of court, which is, again, the Ravensburger is a company that is slated to release uh, Disney's Lorcana, the trading card game in August, which is what the lawsuit is about that we're going to get to. But I thought this was a nice way to also ease our way into it. So will, will you commit to transparency in the event it's settled out of court? Well, that, I mean, look, that question can be taken a lot of different ways, right? I mean, I don't know what they're looking for as transparency. If Are you going to know the the 
the terms of the settlement, you're never going to know the terms of the settlement because every settlement is generally confidential. Yeah. And I don't know what other sort of uh, transparency <laughs> that person would be right. would be asking for. So uh, let's get into it then. So why don't you set the stage for us on on this uh, this Disney Larkana issue, the Ravensburger uh, lawsuit in terms of Upper Deck and your history with Disney sets? Um, can can you can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to tie Disney in here too too much, but you know, we've we've had a Disney license since uh, I think around 2000. Um, there may have been some sets that predate that I'm not super aware of, um, but we've we've done a ton of Disney sets. We actually have a couple available on EPAC right now, so we're along. Uh, licensee of, of Disney itself. Um, as far as trading card games, trading card games go back with the company to um, the very late 90s. And, you know, we've been a, a maker and a developer of trading card games for, you know, 25 years or so. Okay. And so why don't you tell us a bit about this lawsuit that Upper Deck filed? It seemed to have hit the media waves in the last four or five <laughs> days. There's lots of talk on Twitter. Paul Lesko is sort of a, a hobby legal analyst and he are not sort of he is a hobby are you familiar with paul just out of curiosity oh i've seen plenty of paul on social media over the years yeah okay so he he he, he you know reads all these all these filings and provides some information to the hobby uh throws his own opinions on them as well but um what what can you tell us about this what what's the story behind this lawsuit what what are the thing what are the the issues that you're taking that you and, and upper deck are taking cause with well look it, it's really black and white and you can boil it into a, a a simple story right and you know sometimes it's hard when you're reading a lawsuit because it's a lot of legalese but essentially you know we brought a group of designers together back in 2018 to brainstorm what was going to be the next big trading card game um we came up with some concepts and we hired uh, a designer out of that brainstorm to lead the charge on that next big trading card game. That designer um, fulfilled some of the deliverables in the contract. And uh, we started kind of the work on Rush of I-Core. We're knee deep into it. And the designer decided not to finish out the contract. Left here, uh, left the work that was being done here with our team, and and this is you know any game is not done by one person. There's several people involved, uh, particularly here at Upper Deck with our internal team, and that designer went to Ravensburger, uh, basically took the work that was done on Rush of Icor, repackaged it as Loracana, and uh, didn't really become obvious until the rule set was publicly released a few weeks ago that's when we really knew that it was a carbon copy of our game at that point which was extremely disheartening you have a group of people here who have sought to you know build the next big trading card game here for the last few years um, worked hard preparing for the release and all that goes with a trading card game and to see their work uh, and kind of their their lifeblood for for the last few years essentially be given to somebody else and then publicly displayed um, a couple weeks ago was was pretty disappointing and disheartening for the team were you were you guys you your legal team your gaming department were you waiting for that rule set kind of sort of nipping at the bud for it to be published 
publicly so that you could see it and just get an idea as to whether or not it was a carbon copy or it was something completely different? Like how, how much were you guys anticipating the publishing of that rule set? Well, you, you know, we have to be honest. I mean, we were hoping that it would go the other way, <laughs> that it wasn't a, a car carbon copy. Um, there was concern from the day that um, the developer took the job at Ravensburger, whether he was essentially going to take that work with them. Um, but we assumed because we had had a great relationship over the years and, and used him for multiple games that, you know, uh, from just an ethical standpoint, that that wouldn't happen. And as things were leaking and being previewed of the set, um, you know, I think I, I can't speak for our team, but I think they started to get a gut feeling that things were going to go horribly wrong. And they were very anxious to see that rule set. And again, I think the hope was that they were wrong that there was going to be a unique set of rules um, and a game design that didn't resemble Rush of Icor, but that's that's where we ended up, unfortunately. Yeah. My, my question uh, for you in all this is really, what are you trying to achieve with, with the lawsuit? And I want to just bring up a couple of questions that we had come in earlier. Uh, Antonio Stellato said a question, what is the ideal outcome in terms of what happens and at what timeline for Upper Deck in the Lorcana lawsuit? And Sportsball says, are you hoping to delay the launch of Lurkana? So I'll let you kind of speak to those three things. Yeah. So that's mind. a it, it, it's a it's a it's a loaded question because as a as a company that is built to, you know, think of collectors and gamers first, we know that the gamers are heavily anticipating this product and you know a, a lot of collectors and a lot of flippers. This is an odd one because there's a lot of interest. Uh, that reaches far beyond gamers on this release. I think this has mainly been pumped by a lot of influencers. Uh, there's a lot of people hoping to buy, grade, and flip, um, which is not typical for a new trading card game release. Um, so there's a lot of people with some vested interest here outside of uh, a normal gaming community. Um, but for us, it's not, you know, it, it's, if we were to stop the release, then you know, people are disappointed. If we let the release go, it's our game at the end of the day. Um, so we are in a bit of a conundrum here because we, we don't want to upset the gaming community. Um, but, you know, there's a right and wrong. Uh, and, you know, it, I've got a team here that developed that game and they want to release it as their game. Right. So it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky situation. And honestly, uh, I don't know what the ideal outcome is out here because for us, you know, we're caught in between uh, the, the matter of it being our game and we should have the ability to release our game how and how and when we want to. Um, but we also know that the, the boulders already rolling down downhill and, and the collectors and the, the gamers are anticipating it. So it's a tough one. I really appreciate the comments that, you know, you are cognizant of how the trading card game community, uh, it, it, you know, j just to, to them and, and how they are going to operate because they are looking forward to this product. I, I've seen a lot of sentiment, particularly on Twitter in the last couple of days about, you know, uh, they're with Lorcana and that sort of thing um, and maybe be upset at Upper Deck for, for this lawsuit. But at the same time, from what you're saying, you know, um, if it truly is a complete knockoff and the same designer and all of these things that I'm sure will be, I would, I would expect will, will be proven or, or, you know, arguments will be made in court to determine if that's the case. Uh, 
I under, I can, I, I'm great. I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're sensitive to that and that, you know, it's a, it's a delicate balance there. Any, any further comments on that at all? Yeah. I mean, uh, again, you know, we're caught in a, in a really bad position here. Um, it, it's unfortunate and, and we know that people are anticipating this and, and we don't want to harm the community, but we also know, particularly with the gaming community, the gaming community does have a large sense of wrong or right. Um, I would say more than the trading card community in a lot of ways. Um, so I think those who understand what's transpired here uh, definitely understand what we're going through. Uh, but, you know, it's 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 a tough situation. And and look, just like trading card uh, customers are, are gearing up for the national gaming customers are gearing up for Gen Con in Indianapolis and anticipating, you know, big events and big anticipation and, and more news release around Gen Con. So, you know, there's people that have bought tickets to that, that have bought airline tickets, who have booked hotels, you know, just to see this game, play this game. Uh, and they're wondering what's going on as well. And I, I understand that. I mean, a lot. Yeah, uh, I think that that's a great point. And uh, it's just the reality of the situation. People are People have been looking forward to Lorcana since I first heard about it when there were some pre-packs issued uh, back in the fall, I think it was. Um, and and uh, I think a lot of people felt like they missed out on some of that stuff. Uh, again, just from a purely sort of seems like a flipping perspective. But I well, also understand. Jeremy, Jeremy, one of the things, too, that, you know, I, you, you talk about things that are disturbing in the hobby. One of the really disturbing things in the trading card community is that there are a lot of bad actors that have done bad things over the years. And some of those people are being held up as kind of the face of the hobby at this point and have been allowed to continue to, uh, you know, be around this industry, um, buyers, sellers, you know, all the different aspects. And, you know, at some point, people have to be held accountable for what they do. Right. And for whatever reason, our industry in particular seems to be have very short memories and, and allowed bad actors to be around. And at some point, somebody has to stand up for people when they when they don't do something right and get them out of the industry and hold them accountable. It has to happen at some point. Well, I was going to say but just a minute ago that, I mean, protecting your IP is of paramount importance for most companies. I mean, your IP is where you, how you derive value for your brand and for your business. So, um, you know, I, I'm never going to, I'm never going to argue with somebody who wants to protect their IP. I mean, I, I think that's very important. Otherwise, why would you spend money developing things, keeping them secret, filing patents and trademarks and all of these things. So, uh, makes, makes good sense to me that you're doing it. It makes good business sense to me, despite the fact, or, or, you know, along with the fact that, you are going to offend some consumers of the product that they've been looking for forward to. Uh, so it's a delicate balance. And I, I, I think that um, that you're it sounds to me like you're handling or you're proceeding uh, kind of as, as fairly as you can uh, for both sides. But at the end of the day, I think you're going to put upper deck first in this as, as you should. It's your it's your company and you're, you're working in for the benefit of your shareholders and ultimately the hobbies as well. But, um, but you're doing what you can, right? You're doing what you feel you have to do and what is best. And again, you, you, like you said earlier, you had, you had a team working on this for a long time. So for to just go away and be someone to someone else's benefit has to be heartbreaking for your guys as well. Yeah. And you talk about safeguarding RIP, you know, the one thing I wish, uh, uh, 
Paul did was he saw all the, the small lawsuits that we continually file on a regular basis against guys who are doing these custom cards on eBay, Facebook Marketplace, Etsy. Like we literally are running down these guys on a weekly basis, trying to get all this infringing product off of. And, and anybody who's fought, followed the hobby, you know, we don't mind taking on the small guys. We don't mind taking off the, the, the big guys when they're using our athletes, you know, our IP uh, illegally, essentially, we don't have a problem going after them to protect our space and, and ultimately to protect gamers and collectors as well. This stuff that's going on on eBay and Facebook Marketplace and Etsy and all these places drives us absolutely crazy. The problem is it's whack-a-mole. You know, every time we sue somebody or we, we get them to sign an agreement to stop making something, somebody else pops up somewhere. And it's, it's almost impossible to stop everybody, but we do our darndest to try. You know, we enforce our IP very heavily, and I would say more than anybody else in, in our industry. Great. Okay, I'm going to go to some comments that have come in in the past couple of minutes. Paul Esco says, I cover those that I know of. Upper Deck does more enforcement than most. Uh, and then Nivis Carton... Nivis Nerd Corner says, as a person on the other side, I appreciate you opening your heart and mind to us, which I think is a, a nice comment right there. Paul also said, thanks, Jason, for your thoughtfulness in discussing the Lorcana situation. I was expecting a lot of no comments, so pleasantly surprised. And any, anything to respond before I go to some more comments? No, but you know what I have I have uh, used recently with some interviews is I, I like the uh, Drew Rosenhaus uh, next question. Um, I like to use that one. <laughs> Citizens of Lorcana says, uh, I also appreciate Jason's thoughtfulness. So that's nice to hear from obviously uh, someone who's looking for Lorcana. Uh, Knives, thank you, Knives Nerd Corner. I'm glad you told me <laughs> how to say your name and welcome, welcome to the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel. And I'm going to ask again, people, because there are a lot of new people here today. Welcome to my channel. Been doing this for over three years, over 400 live streams, and looking to grow the the audience and the platform. So if you want to subscribe, I do live and interactive interviews every Saturday night among a few other shows during the week. Tabletop Gamer says, glad you're taking out counterfeiters. As you mentioned, the Etsy, some of those Etsy issues right there. Uh, the professor here says, Jason is correct. We need an accredit accreditation slash audit to evolve in the hobby. This is a strong argument. Do you have any further thoughts on that? There is a there is a bit of a, a movement on Instagram I've noticed over the last couple of days to create like a, 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 a somewhat of a collector's coalition to, to set some standards for the industry. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, you know, we feel like we've taken the first step in that with our certified diamond dealer program that we started. I want to say it was around 2010 um, to make sure that, hey, you know, if you're buying from a certified dealer, uh, certified diamond dealer, that you're dealing with somebody reputable that Upper Deck backs up and, and will help protect you as a consumer. Um, I would like to see the other manufacturers step up and do something very similar as well. Um, you know, the hard part is, is that you're always going to have unscrupulous people kind of playing on the fringes, right? Um, and again, we see this with shill bidding. We see this with counterfeiters, with patch swapping. And the hardest part, I think, is that when you move from kind of one area to the next uh, and you stop somebody, they kind of, like you said earlier, they find someplace else to go. Um, but look, there are some great people out there on the forums and the threads that do 
uh, what I would say is uh, like a hobby policing. Um, and I would love to see more of those people kind of join forces and, and look out. Uh, the problem is, as I stated earlier, even when we find these bad actors, they seem to be allowed back into the hobby that we love. And it just it, it continues this cycle over and over again. You know, we have to figure out how to get these these bad actors out once and for all. And I don't have a great answer for that. But, man, people embrace some of these bad people, uh, even though they have this long history of, of shenanigans. Yeah. Uh, Gigi Kesey says, we appreciate the regard for the TCG community. Doing what's right is important. What are your realistic expectations for how the lawsuit will go? So it's a great question. You know, generally speaking, whenever you have these lawsuits, one of two things happen. Either there is conversation between the parties and they try to you know, resolve it and come to some type of solution, or it becomes an all out battle and brawl. And at this point, I can't tell you, you know, how this is going to evolve. It's just too early at this point. Okay. Well, fair enough for now. I'm sure we'll, we'll learn more. Rain Supreme asked, has there ever been a contract between Upper Deck and Ravensburger prior to the suit? Uh, not that I know of, not that I'm familiar with. And I have to admit, I, I didn't, I didn't even know who was, who had, who was doing Lorcana. I only knew Ravensburger as a, as a puzzle making company. I did not know they were in the gaming business as well. So uh, I was surprised that I only learned in the last few days, but I, I'm not a TCG guy, but I certainly respect everybody in that, in that hobby. And uh, I think it's uh, it's certainly very compelling. Uh, Jeff S. asked this, isn't Lorcana very similar to all TCGs? A lot of components are used in Hearthstone, Empty, uh, Magic the Gathering, Yu-Gi-Oh, Runes of, I don't know, Runeterra, etc. What separates Lorcana slash Rush? And I don't know what Rush is. I'm sorry to the, my, my, the TCG people. I don't know what a lot of, of these things are, but uh, maybe you do, Jason, and can respond. So this one is one I'm not going to get into. I think you'll see as the lawsuit unfolds, if it continues to unfold, you'll really get some of the, the minutia and detail that people are looking for to, uh, to show how um, the two games resemble each other. So this next one might be a little similar, but I'll let you just uh, respond as you just did if you need to. What are the reasons or mechanics slash designs that made you realize Larkana was a carbon copy of Rush of Icor? Yeah, same answer. Stay tuned. You'll, you'll see it. Okay, okay. Appreciate that. Um, all right, and then I'm going to ask you one more question uh, that, I, that I've, I've actually sort of typed out, so make sure I get it right. But it says, so since the complaint says that Upper Deck will be seeking an injunction to stop the release of Lorcana in August, the only way to do so is if Upper Deck plans to file a motion for a temporary restraining order or a, or a motion for a preliminary injunction. Is that something Upper Deck intends on doing? Well, look, this is, I think, the 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 part where Paul's going to be disappointed. You know, I'm not going to get into kind of the legal strategy as we go here. You know, our lawyers are are meeting and conferring and talking about all the different steps as we go. Um, I think that's the hardest part. I I think for anybody who's looking at a case unfolding is to figure out exactly what the strategy is, what are the steps that each company is going to take as they go, because the only people know that are the lawyers on each side. Okay. Yeah, I, I think probably that I think I think that's likely the expected answer tonight. But, um, you know, you got to keep what you can close to the vest. There could very well likely be Ravensburger employees or or executives watching us right now. So I or their legal team even. So I don't I don't blame you at all for keeping a few things 
close to the vest and, and within your, your legal team uh, itself. Uh, Knives Nerd Corner says, we appreciate your honesty and a great discussion on the subject. Thank you, Knives. I appreciate you and having you here for sure. Uh, thank you to B Squared 24 for saying we're doing great here. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to host you guys. I've, I've done some TCG episodes in the past, not for a while, but uh, definitely great to have you guys here tonight. So thank you uh, for joining. Uh, Peter Collect here says, are there any key takeaways from the reintroduction of Skybox and precious metal gems in the last few years, brand building, secondary market, using with rookies versus stars versus legends? Yeah, I mean, the key is is realizing how much people love PMGs at the end of the day. You know, it's um, it's been fun. You know, I think the uh, the main question that happens in the building on a regular basis is, you know, what needs a PMG and what what doesn't, right? Um, you know, and making sure that we're not repeating um, the same thing kind of over and over again. And you know, we see this in hockey. You know, we have a great refresh in hockey of rookies every year that keep the PMGs, you know, somewhat uh, healthy and, and kind of living on. Um, but as you expand it into other things, Marvel is a great, great spot. And we have an AEW uh, product coming. Um, you know, how do you maintain that consistency and value when you have kind of the same checklist over and over again? And that's the challenge that the team has to wrestle with. Um, when you have kind of the same subjects over and over again, you know, Spider-Man, Wolverine, those guys don't change. There's not a huge rookie class coming in every year. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a different animal than sports. Um, same with AEW. Once we get rolling with AEW, I'm not sure you can do that product every year, um, because a lot of the wrestlers are the same every, every year. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, GG Keezy, are there any other exciting TCG products in development at Upper Deck that you can comment on? I will say we do have another trading card game um, in the hopper. Uh, I can't remember if it was publicly announced yet, but if you're going to Gen Con, uh, I believe there is going to be either an announcement or some demos there this year. All right. Well, that's very exciting for the TCG community. Regardless who will own the mechanics, both games. So he's talking about Lorcana and Rush of Icor. Uh, look to be interesting. I'm excited to play whatever I'm able to. All right. Well, good good knives. I think that's a, that's a good attitude to have uh, for sure. Knives is hyped to see what other TCGs you have coming, I, especially the one that you just uh, you just sort of teased us with a little bit there, Jason. Always fun to get get a bit of a uh, a scoop here on sports cards live and we're now we're now juggling between uh tcg and lorcana and and yeah. pmg so we're gonna go back to yeah. pmgs for a moment here vintage card collector and this is something that i i was gonna ask right. he says how do you balance preventing pmgs from being watered down and no longer special and my thought on this jason is that we're seeing too many of them now in in hockey i'm not talking about marvel or anywhere else and I'm I'm fearful that they're going to go the way of the jersey card, which was a which was a a major hit, a, an exciting card to own in '96 '97, but really since then, you know, some they're not. I don't even consider a jersey card to really be a hit anymore if it's just a simple jersey card. So, what do you what are you thinking? And I I don't, and and I just also want to take a moment here to mention that I've seen some comments come from. Very specific questions. And I'll just say that some of the questions I'm seeing are, are not for Jason 
I just know this. They are for the product uh, manager. So I'm not going to ask you about them, but I, this is a more, this is a higher level question. So um, what are we going to do to ensure that the, that the PMG, the precious metal gem doesn't go the way of the Jersey card? So, so, so let's have some dialogue on that. So when you say that you feel like there's too many PMGs, give me a little more detail and kind of, you know, give an example of why you think there's too many PMGs. Yeah. So we had the first hockey PMG came in 2012 FLIR Retro. Uh, Then they showed up, I think, three more times in the FLIR Showcase product, maybe a Hot Prospects. I don't don't remember what what else it was called. I think it was just FLIR, FLIR, FLIR Retro and then maybe it was three years of FLIR showcase and pardon me if there was a different brand that, that had them uh, in, in 13, 14 or 16, 15 or 16. Um, and then we only saw them as employee PMGs, which are very rare regardless. And then with, with the return of Skybox Metal Universe in 2020, we had, we had the retro version. We had the new design base parallel version. We had the autograph parallel. And then we had the second year of FLIR uh, of Skybox Metal Universe that just came out a little while ago that did the same sort of thing. A, a new design, which I really like that new design. I, I like the 2021 design a lot better than 2020. And then so I, I believe some retro parallel, uh, some retro versions as well. Um, so for me as a collector, Jason, I do love the PMGs in my collection, but I'm starting to feel like I'm good now. I don't need a new PMG every year of a, of an active non-rookie or a retired player, let's say. Uh, but when it comes to new rookies, I think it's compelling in that way, right. but I'm just not a fan of the new PMG, the retro parallel. And then the, and, and I just think that autographs on PMGs should, I just think it ruins it for me. I, I, I personally, and I, I think, I think several people feel that way, but I understand why, you need to put autographs on cards. They are hits and all that. So um, with all that said, hopefully I provide you with the context that you were looking for. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I tend to agree with you. I don't think autographs are, are necessary on PMGs. Um, you know, I think the dilemma that the product team is always balancing is, is how to deliver people PMG content um, so that they feel when they're buying the product, they're they're getting some type of PMGs, but try to make them special. And I think that's what you've kind of seen with the last couple of years is they've tried to add some variety with the retro versus the regular one. Um, the problem is if you're a player collector, now you've got a couple different PMGs to go after, right? And I think that's your concern is like, you know, it's it's hard enough if you've got one every year that you're chasing and, you know, you may or may not go after it because it's a new design year after year. But now you've got a couple different versions of every player. Um, so the balance is a very difficult one for the product team of how do you deliver PMG content on a regular basis so that people feel that their spend is justified, uh, but not water it down. And you know, it's it's interesting. We've learned some some things over the years. You know, sometimes when you pull back on things, they become more valuable and more sought after, um, and you don't need them as often. Um, but the initial reaction when you start pulling back on content is, oh my God, they're giving me less for my money, right? It's not, hey, these will probably be worth more, um, which makes it very hard uh, for the product team because the first thing, if they solicit a product and it has less PMG content in it, uh, the first thing that everybody who looks at the pre-order sheets is going to say is, 
all they watered when they watered down the content like the pmgs don't fall often enough again so it, it again it's a it's a chicken and an egg type thing right so it's a it's a very delicate balance uh, i do think the team has done a great job with the upper deck base brand um because there was a time where people were saying hey every box has to have two jersey cards in it right and you probably remember that like if you don't have jersey cards in upper deck we're not buying it and slowly over time those jersey cards became harder and harder and harder to get to the point where i'm not even sure there's uh, jersey cards in the product going forward um because they're just not necessary anymore uh, but even when they were in the product towards the end there they're so rare that they're actually more valuable now which is actually better for the end collector that they're more special so it's it's tough i i know everybody thinks it's a simple issue but it's it's a really tough issue when you're building these products yeah it's i definitely hear you it's a tough balancing act for sure um it would be great and i know upper deck has, has attempted to kind of devise what might be the next pmg we've seen fluorescence uh, in some in some in upper deck series one and series two or, or which which whatever one it comes out in over the last few years, and I think I think you know we're seeing we're seeing upper deck go sort of back to the well and really uh, drawing on some some legacy inserts, especially in in the metal universe product. I think it may, and Flare Ultra we're going to see some, right. and I think it makes sense in those products and. And I know your product, your product management team and design team. I have a lot of respect for these guys, and 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 they're they're just great people overall. Billy, Tony, who I know personally, and and the rest of them, um, you know, and of course Grant leading leading the team. Like uh, I have so much respect for your team over there, and we've seen some really nice innovations in some new inserts coming out. How challenging is it now? Because there is so much reverence for these '90s inserts, the, the the precious metal gems, the platinum portraits, the essential credentials. So the hobby loves these things. So it's it's natural for Upper Deck to want to go recreate them and revive them. With that said, how how challenging is it to come up with a new insert to become revered today and and, in, and ten years from now? Like, is that a, is that a big challenge that you guys grapple with? Yeah, look, you know, I think our team is really underappreciated in the hobby, especially with creating um, exciting content that doesn't feature autographs and game used jerseys. That became a hyper focus point for us back in 2011 and 2012. You can actually, if somebody kind of goes back and starts to look at product from that era going forward, that's really where the team started focusing on insert content that focus on technology and interesting themes um, to deliver value outside of autographs and jerseys. I know a lot of other people get credit for it, but the history is there. You can go back and see some of the stuff, the day with the cup and, and all the different types of uh, content, you know, in, in not even in hockey and Goodwin and some of the other places. Um, so these guys spend uh, an inordinate amount of time trying to come up with new concepts. At the same time, you can't ignore the hype for the past. So when you see people go back and get excited about those inserts from the 90s uh, or the early 2000s, we go back to that. Well, um, you know, we're, we're excited. You know, the team gets excited because some of our favorite products 
come from that era as people and employees in this is company, you know, we, we laugh about it. Um, you know, I know there's not the, the super hyped rookies and the young guns and extended, but some of my favorite insert content is an extended because it has, you know, themes and, and retro designs from the late nineties and early two thousands, whether it's holographics or UD three, um, some of that stuff. So we like to be able to use that, especially things that maybe weren't popular at that time, but have grown in popularity, you know, over the last few years, and then try to develop brand new concepts uh, as we move forward. You know, things like the shadow box cards and SPX, um, you know, we've tried video cards in the cup, you know, we've tried a, a ton of different things. Um, but, and look, these guys, I, I don't think anybody understands the pressure they're under because there is a heavy mandate from both myself and Grant not to recycle too much of the same technology or content over and over again. That's why you only see a couple Chrome products for us a year, you know, because we don't want to bludgeon it, um, you know, like some of the other sports do. Um, you, that's why you don't see a ton of light effects technology in different products. Um, you know, we may have even gone to the well a little bit much with the acetate cards, but, you know, we're trying to create a nice, even diverse. And the challenge is, is coming up with new technologies and new themes in a two and a half by three and a half space is, is really tough. And you're right. Like these guys don't get enough credit for the creativity they come up with. And look, uh, what we've seen, and I think is a heavy example is, is something that didn't work five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, all of a sudden becomes wildly popular. Yeah. You know, literally we sat in meetings with the shops and distributors and they said, don't ever come out with a FLIR hockey product ever again. And now it's completely inverted. And that was just five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know. And I, I was, as I said earlier, I was, I was telling Billy, I said, listen, man, you guys are going to have to turn that around because it's, it's not the case anymore. It might've been the case two, three years ago. I mean, I was talking about this with him in 2020, maybe even 2019. Uh, before before the first Metal Universe, uh, the, the new Metal Universe came out again in 2020. Um, Vintage Card Collector makes a really, I think, an astute comment here with respect to coming up with a new concept. He says, the problem is it's more difficult, expensive, and risky to develop new product lines. It's why Disney releases a new Marvel movie every few months. They are cash cows. Uh, does that resonate with you? It does. I mean, obviously... Um... You know, we, we came up with Metal Universe uh, before it got super hot, but it makes it easier to sell that product 100%. I think the, the, along the same lines, it, you know, we're, we're very staunch in this company about coming up with a product line, a new product line or a new product concept and sticking with it. Because what we see is it the longer you stick with it, the more popular it can become. Opeachy Platinum is a prime example. Opeachy Platinum really struggled the first couple of years. Now I would, I would say it's one of the more anticipated hockey products every year. People still say the same thing about Synergy. Um, those people who don't love Synergy kind of wonder why we stick with that brand. There are people who love that brand, and I think it has a very distinctive look, but it takes a lot of wherewithal as a company and a product team to continue with those lines year after year. And, you know, sometimes you give up, you know, we gave up on hot prospects. We gave up on, you know, showcase and some of these brands. And, you know, sometimes uh, what's the saying, you, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Yeah. 
um, sometimes you have to cancel the product to get people to, to come back and be excited about it again. You you just mentioned synergy, right? I mean, I, w- I just wrote it down because I was going to say synergy is uh, synergy is a product that I, I like. Uh, I like certain components of it a lot. And I think it's completely underappreciated and uh, just not enough people know about some of the gems in that product. And I picked up a few pieces along the way. Uh, so where are things at with Synergy? Is it going to continue? What are the plans for that that you can share with us? Yeah, no, Synergy is is a staple in the in the product line. And again, this this is where, you know, I dispute a little bit about um, the overlap with the hobby shops. Synergy performs way better on EPAC than it does at the hobby shops. Um, for whatever reason, it just resides with that customer base better. Um, and, you know, we it's definitely found a home with the EPAC collector. And we hope that it continues to get stronger, uh, you know, on the on the hobby shop side as we go. All right, I'm glad to hear. I think I think I think that's one where if you cancel it, people would go back in a couple of years. But right. if you keep if you keep it going, that might accelerate. Who who knows what'll happen? I know it's a it, it, it's somewhat um, of a divisive sort of a product out there. It's one of those <laughs> you love it or you hate it sort of products. Do you, do you notice that as well? Yeah, and I got to be honest. the The first couple iterations, I, I don't, I didn't love how they were built. Um, and you know, I sat down and got some feedback from the product team of why they were built that way. I think the the builds for the newer synergies are light and uh, light years ahead of where they were when that brand first came out. And I, I like the product a lot, but I'm also partial to that technology. I love the EX. Um, technologies from the from the late 90s and it has that similar type of feel yeah a couple comments from a couple of buddies of mine here mitch here says seems like an impossible product problem for upper deck fleer retro was dirt cheap back in the day and by the time the hobby decided they loved it upper deck no longer saw any of those gains fair comment and then reed here says i think the synergy epac achievements are great additions that makes the product more enticing to rip cast for greatness comes to mind. So there's some direct feedback for you uh, on those. Uh, we're going to, a couple more comments here. Back to TCG for a moment. The Illumiteers says, does Upper Deck see significant growth opportunities in the TCG space? If so, what is causing that trend? Well, look, I, I, the, the, the growth is for Pokemon. I mean, what's gone on in Pokemon is absolutely ridiculous and nobody has been able to explain it to me. <laughs> if you look at the grading reports right now, on a weekly, monthly basis, people are grading twice the amount of Pokemon that they are of baseball. I mean, it is absolutely insane right now. Um, so that's where the most growth is, is for Pokemon and it's an animal in and of itself. It's, it's been around for 30 years now. It's not going anywhere. It's got Nintendo behind it. Um, for us as a company, look, we make games and we've made TCGs and booster pack models and we make games in a box and we make tabletop games and board games and TCGs just fit as part of the overall portfolio for us. And we haven't, we haven't done a TCG for roughly about 10 years. Um, and it was time for us to get back in that space. And again, we started planning new TCGs back in 2018. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the grading uh, frequency of it. And I want to just bring up grading. And as you know, I'm, I'm an involved with tag grading, which is, uh, you know, an automated grading system, uh, non-biased, no human, no human grading being done. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on, the movement towards 
unbiased automated grading in our space. And and maybe if you have if you know much about tag, uh, despite our very short conversation on it, um, what are your thoughts on on that and sort of the 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 ability now for the hobby to have an option for not only uh, human grading but uh, but automated grading as well. Well, I, I think grading has to get to a point where there's no subjectivity to it anymore. Um, you know, you've had some guests on recently that talked about, well, they, you know, certain graders tighten up their standards for a while, then they loosen it up and it changes. We know that there's been kind of insider deals over the years where they'll hand a stack of stuff to the, the graders and the graders will tell them, here's what we're going to grade, here's what we're going to grade. Um, there's been, you know, obviously there's some things with group submitters and, and all that. Like there's just, there's too many games being played and too much subjectivity into the system. This has to get to an automated system. It has to get to a point where everything is unbiased for everybody to be comfortable with grading going forward. And look, that's the skepticism that goes. I mean, there are people in the hobby still that refuse to submit any of their cards to grading because they don't like it being subject to the whims on whether that grader had a good day, a bad day, whether they've been told that, hey, you're too lenient or you're too hard, so they change their grading standards, or whether your grade changes depending on the grader that looks on it in any given day. And look, that's the system that's been in place that was the best that there was for years, but the reality is, is it has to change for everybody to get to a point where they're comfortable with grading. So can I read into that, that you're, you're a fan of what we're doing at Tag Grading and you're wishing the best for, for tag. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, the, the owner, I, and I don't remember his name. Um, Steve Cass, Steve, I believe Steve called me probably about seven, eight years ago. So when, when he said that he's been working on it for 10 years before the launch, I know that's a fact because he called me and picked my brain. Um, and I told him, I said, Hey, I, I'm with you. I think this needs to happen. Um, but I also said upper deck, can't be involved. Um, we can't be in a position where we grade our own cards. It's a huge conflict of interest, kind of circling back to where we started. Um, so I said, hey, if you ever need advice, if you ever need thoughts, I'm here to, to help you. Um, and I would love to see this thing launch, but just Upper Deck cannot be directly involved with the, the grading of cards. So I can verify that he was working on it for a very long time and, and I supported it. And I, I think, you know, eventually, this is where grading will end up. I don't know how long it'll, it'll take for it to kind of be a, a universal thing, but it's definitely the where we're going to see the future head. Yeah, well, I, I believe not myself as well. And I can tell you that your your upper deck cards look beautiful in, in the, the transparent slabs uh, that, that Tag uh, has has going. And um, if everyone just take a look at the, at the ticker right now, Tag, uh, the Discord server is now open. The community Facebook community page. If you go to the community tab at taggrading.com, you can it'll take you to join either Discord or Facebook. Follow Tag Grading on Instagram. You can stay informed on what is going on at Tag Grading, my personal favorite grading company. And yes, I am financially involved with them, so uh, I, I feel like I must disclose that after those comments as well. Uh, decoy cards here says really appreciate jason's candor in this discussion just wanted to say classical peachy never fails for me big checklists give cards to players that might not always get a card great with great easter eggs and yeah oh peachy's a a wonderful staple product uh for you guys no doubt well, about it 
and and hopefully he noticed that we did move it in the calendar to start getting rookies in and uh that was a hard decision to make because we always loved it being kind of early in the calendar but you know the entire team felt like we were always missing something by having to stick the rookies into to ud2 instead of having them live in the product so hopefully uh hopefully decoy appreciates that move in the calendar yeah, that, that's a great point. Tabletop Gamer says, think you might bring back VS system as a TCG again. So, so Jeremy, for the for the non-TCG guy, we, we call it the versus system. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, look, there's been a lot of discussion about it. Um, we did change some, some game mechanics, uh, taking it to a game in a box. And look, it was the where the, the hobby was at the time where people wanted a... a one time they wanted to buy a game they wanted to have the whole game um that was the experience back when we brought that back in the the early 2010s um the model has definitely shifted and that discussion happens here every all the time um i don't think it will be in the near future um, but that discussion does happen on on a regular basis here all right well good to hear that um Jeff S just opines here. We were talking about what's going on with Pokemon. He says the Pokemon craze is in the grade and flip for profit mode as we speak, similar to a few years ago in the sports card hobby, bulk submitting, easy profit doesn't happen as often. And then Shane Morgan says, would Rush of Icor being being a collector's or player's game first? So is it going to be a collector's or a player's game first, given the usual markets that Upper Deck deals with? It will definitely be a player's game first. Um, look, there's always collectability to TCGs, uh, but part of the reason that it's taken so long to do the development is we are spending a lot of time on research subject matter, uh, making sure that it fits uh, tournament structures and the gameplay is right. Um, it has really been a, a labor of love for the team, you know, building that game and making sure that it's a great gaming experience. You know, our viewpoint is if the game is good, everything else falls into place. And that's what we've been focused on. So it's definitely players first, not the collectors. All right. And we're just kind of going through some comments right now, questions in the chat that aren't all sort of in, in, in sequence with what we're doing. So Jason, we'll, we'll jump around a few times. I have three more lined up and then a couple more topics and then we'll, will be done. Uh, Justin here says, for Upper Deck being an authentication company, why are cards seeming to go backwards in stating the COA on current cards versus older cards? And I think it has to do with, you know, um, you know, the, this, this, the, the memorabilia on the front of the card was used by a player in an official NHL game, or now we're saying, you know, less and less specific. And I haven't personally noticed it on Upper Deck. I'm not saying it's not there. And calling right. Justin out. I, I think, I think I may have seen it somewhere, but I've definitely noticed it on, on other sport card companies yeah. backs where it yeah. just says the enclosed memorabilia is guaranteed by the company well, guaranteed for what? Like it, that doesn't tell us anything. Can you speak to that? And um, yeah. Can you just address that please? Yeah. So I, I think we, we have the most specific uh, game used or player worn copy in the industry by far. Uh, we have seen a regression in the industry. Uh, I can't speak to why the other companies have gone that way. Uh, I would love to be even more specific. Um, but the, the problem is, is that um, for some cards, you know, we actually may use swatches from multiple jerseys, uh, particularly on current players and depending on the product. 
um, where we know for sure that it's a you know smaller run. So like, for example, the net cords, um, some of the Stanley Cup stuff, some of the banner stuff where we know it was used in a specific time, you will see that called out either on the front or the back of the card. So where the team can be as specific as possible, we definitely try to be specific. So I would argue, Justin, you may feel like we've gone backwards, but I would say that it, it's night and day compared to the others in this space, how specific we are on a lot of the, the legal copy on the, on the game used and the player worn stuff. All right. Well, thanks for the, for the response and the question, Justin. We'll leave that at that. Irish Flyers Collector said, thank you, Jason and team at Upper Deck for the upcoming changes to Young Guns in 23-24 with a limited, with a limited number of variations. Young Guns needed a refresh. I think the hobby is, has responded well to those changes. So kudos to the to the well. And, and let me address that, Jeremy. So so you talk about the issues with PMGs, and the PMGs only have a couple variations. I will tell you that it is an annual debate in this building on do we have too many versions of young guns <laughs> and i am part of that conversation every year and i will tell you very honestly and candidly i lost the debate this year on this one um i was not actually in favor of the changes to the young guns this year i got on voted it was like a like a 10 to 1 type thing so i can't take any credit for for the changes to the young guns um, definitely the product team drove this this year. And yes, I, it's been kind of overwhelmingly positive. Um, I was just concerned, you know, do we have too many versions of the young guns? That's always the debate and the concern because the that equity in that logo and that brand is unlike anything else we see in the hobby. And we are very cautious to protect it. Yeah. And I think, I think, even though you've added a few new levels or parallels, if we'll, that, would, that we can call them that, uh, I think it, I, I did the math. I think you've only added 276, if I remember, I did this math a while ago, new numbered cards. So that's it. There's only 276 per player, new kind of numbered young gun hits out there. So it's not that much. It's not like you're adding four more parallels, unnumbered, uh, yeah. with different kind of stock and all that. So... Um, there is that there are the, there are the EPAC variations, which I don't really personally count them as uh, I know some people do, but uh, I'll leave that alone. Cause I'm not a huge fan of that, but in any event, um, I appreciate you trying to protect that and that you guys do value <laughs> that, that the equity in the young guns brand. I don't think what has been around longer. They've been around since 1991 with, I think a short break for a couple of years, but, uh, yeah, excellent, uh, excellent brand and equity there. And I don't always win the arguments in the building. And you shouldn't. You're only one opinion. <laughs> you have a team for a reason. Yeah. So you shouldn't yeah. win. Some decisions you shouldn't win all the time, even as the president of the company. Uh, okay, so related to this, Josh Madigan, co-host of the Hockey Cards Gong Show and my co-host on Sunday nights here on the channel says, hockey has an incoming generational and transcendent talent next season that will likely bring new fans into the game and new collectors to the hobby. What are Upper Deck's plans to take advantage of this? So, Josh, it's a great question, but you know, for us, we don't look at it as as a one time thing. Look, if you if you look at the growth of hockey cards, we really point to 2015, and it was a three pronged attack. It was McDavid coming in. It was our first program at Tim Hortons, which gave exposure to hockey cards in Canada like it hadn't ever seen. 
Uh, and it was the growth of EPAC and the launch of EPAC that delivered hockey cards all over the globe. Um, and being able to touch any collector who wants to ever buy a pack of trading cards. And the one I always talk about, and you, everybody's probably heard this before, but you know, we've sold packs of trading cards in Yemen, right? Like there's nobody else that sold hockey cards in Yemen. Um, so, you know, we took it as 2015 was the start of having to grow. And again, we've continued to beat that drum ever since then to figure out ways to bring people into the hobby. You know, we've run programs um, with different sponsors, whether it's Subway in the Vancouver area. Um, we've done different programs with other sponsors to get hockey cards into people's hands. We've done uh, new collector guides and intro kits. So you may have seen them at Walmart, Target, other retail outlets that have a binder, a couple packs, a glossary of terms, because I think the biggest deterrent to bringing new collectors into this industry is how complicated it actually is for new people when they see it. You know, what is a parallel? What is a variation? You know, what is a Jersey card? Like, again, that's all second nature to us, but if you're brand new, you have no idea what that is. Um, so we include a glossary of terms and a checklist for people who are coming into the hobby. Um, we've done uh, math kits for teachers at different schools to allow them to use hockey cards as a, a teaching lesson. Um, we've worked with uh, a variety of charity organizations. There are uh, youth camps that we donate cards to every year uh, to get cards into people's hands. And like I said earlier, we're at every major NHL event. And I don't think there's anything more uh, positive to connect rookie cards to people than being the title sponsor of the NHL draft. I mean, it just makes so much sense on so many levels that Upper Deck is the title sponsor and can talk about rookie cards and, and trading cards at the NHL draft uh, that it, I'm not sure why we didn't do it sooner um, and why it's not being done in, in all the sports, quite frankly. So, you know, we're, we're doing everything we can to bring people into hockey cards, not just this year, but for the last, you know, eight, nine years. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, great work. Keep it up. And, uh, and um, I, you know, it does seem like we had 05 Crosby Ovechkin. We had a lot of new collectors come into the, into the hobby hockey at least 2015 mcdavid a lot of new collectors i think we're all anticipating another uh another swarm of new collectors next yep. year with connor bedard and i'm sure you guys are have been anticipating that for years now not just as of right not not just in the last few months not just since the draft lottery or even uh you know the whole year leading up to to, to his draft so well and and the other part of that conversation jeremy is if you bring people in you got to get them to stay and honestly, that's where we definitely rely on our brick and mortar hobby stores. But the other thing that's so key that I think is underappreciated with hockey is you have to be careful to protect long-term value of the cards and the sets. You know, if you pump out a ton of worthless rookie cards and worthless content in those big years, when they lose value, people go, why am I doing this if, if they came in, especially as an investment? And, you know, we're pretty proud that during the pandemic, we didn't see these wild changes in values for hockey cards. Like it was fairly steady. Yes, we saw an increase in demand. Yes, we saw increased in values, but they weren't crazy peaks and valleys like we've seen in the other sports. I think that leads to people leaving the hobby 
on a regular basis more than some of the other stuff. So yes, we have to bring people in, but we have to give them a stable collecting environment for them to stay. And I think that's the more key part of that whole thing. Yeah, I definitely agree. Super, super important right there. Listen, we still, I still want to talk to you about the national coming up, but we still want to get into quality control. So if anyone is thinking about turning off this show yet, we still have some good stuff to come, Jason. We're going to go into overtime. Uh, we're going to go into overtime, which I call after the two-hour mark. Uh, right now, we're over two hours, so we'll throw <laughs> up overtime there just so everyone knows where we are at. But a few more comments, and then we're going to get into, into that. So first of all, the Illumiteers asked, will tag grade TCG cards? And I can let you know that right now, tag is only grading squared corner TCG cards but we are expecting to get into the, the Pokemon and the Yu-Gi-Oh and all that stuff here uh, by the end of the year. So hold tight, be patient, wait to send them in. We will be getting there for sure. Thank you, Yankees fan, for the comment, and thank you for being here. Name from Indigenous Rookie Card says, I love the lesson plan for teachers. The stats on the back of hockey cards are how I improved my math skills as a kid. So that's just awesome stuff uh, right there. The National Jason. Last couple of years, last couple of nationals, um, Upper Deck hasn't had a corporate presence. Uh, will Upper Deck be back to Chicago at the end of July with a corporate presence at the national? Yeah, we're going to have a major presence at the national now that you know we don't have to worry about COVID. I mean, even going into last year, we had a lot of concerns for our employees with COVID, um, not just in the building, but putting them out at events. Uh, I just wasn't at the point where I was super comfortable about putting our employees out there. Uh, I think it was the right decision. Uh, it, you know, it, people missed us at the show, but we'll be back. I think we're at a different point with the pandemic now than we were even a year ago. Uh, so we're excited to be there. I'll actually be there myself this year, uh, as well as a large portion of our staff. And you guys can be very excited about all the stuff that we have planned uh, around the national this year. All right. Very exciting. Jeff says, will we see more focusing on women's professional hockey uh, or is the exclusive agreement done soon and priorities are elsewhere? No, we're definitely focused on women's professional hockey. I think the biggest issue is that that political environment is still very tough. You know, the best players in the world still aren't playing for a league. You know, they, they do like a tour. They kind of have their own organization. So the talent is very split and fractured and there's a lot of time spent um, in the political world between those organizations and less time on developing the sport so unfortunately we're along for the ride and it's a little messy vintage card collector says jason is incredibly well spoken and thoughtful seems like a great leader very nice comment vintage thank you for posting that all right quality control jason our last scheduled topic of the evening my question for you is does upper deck think about the eventual grading of cards when you are producing cards? Yeah, so look, grading is not our focus, but we definitely talk about it. I think there's a couple of key points that most collectors you know, don't understand. You know, Our expectation as collectors is that every card is perfect coming out of the, out of the pack. So I think first and foremost, there are specific technologies and printing types that are just going to be damaged no matter what you do. PMG, since it seems to be a hot topic, that technology, which is extremely beautiful, is highly susceptible to chipping. And it's been like that since they were created back in the 90s. 
It's unfortunate they're not going to grade 10s unless you get really lucky or 9.5s, depending on the grading service you use. Uh, and there's nothing we can do about it. It, it. The only other way to solve that quality control issue with pressed metal gems is just not to make them. Uh, we see that the same thing with black bordered cards or black cards in general. My, my favorite is UD Black. It was one of the first projects I worked in in 2006 when I started with this company. Black edges are just susceptible to basically chipping, turning white, uh, edge wear, uh, corner wear. That's just the nature of the beast. There's nothing we can do about it. They make beautiful cards, but they're susceptible to damage. Anytime you have a thick card, you basically have more surface area for those to become damaged. And a lot of those are autographed, which means they've been handled by multiple people to get them shipped to the athlete, have them sign them. You know, Lord knows what they do to them during the signing, ship them back, put them into the packs. Um, and you've got multiple surfaces and more chances, whether it's the top corner, the bottom corner, the in-between layers all get damaged. They're just susceptible to damage. And it's a catch-22 because... They make nice cards, but they are going to be damaged more. So that's hard. I think the other thing um, that we're seeing uh, and I know has come up as a grading topic lately is the variation in card size. And, you know, one of the things that I think, again, I wouldn't know if I didn't work here is what actually happens on the factory floor during the process. So, you know, cutting the cards is generally automated. But you, what you will see is you will see variation. The, the sheets move from time to time, and they can move um, here and there, top to bottom, side to side. Uh, the, the blades that cut them get dull. And while the cutting process is automated, you have to rely on people to change the blades or to make sure that the sheets aren't moving around too much, that they have the guards keeping the sheet in place. Um, so some of the variation that you see sometimes with the size of cards, the, the cut of the cards, sometimes they're slanted, which is kind of goofy. That all comes from somebody that the, essentially the machine getting off track and somebody not being there to correct it quickly and letting those cards kind of get into the production run. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. It, it, again, it's, it's, a lot of it is human run, even though the the operations themselves are, I guess, automated. There are humans there to make sure that and they have to catch these things and switch out the blades. You know, there are size variations and that that does come into play really uh, a lot with with precious metal gems. The grading companies will turn them away because they're they don't meet meet the size requirement. They're too small for the slab or they're too big for the slab. Sometimes do the do grading companies contact you? on a regular basis or a semi-regular basis about these sorts of issues to see what's going on. And, and um, what can you tell us about that? So generally speaking, we do get calls from time to time when the grading companies see something irregular come in um, specifically from uh, one submitter or a couple submitters. I, I will say the grading card companies are pretty good about realizing which product runs have heavy variation and which ones don't. Um, so they'll go into the marketplace, they'll look around, they'll talk to shops, they'll talk to collectors, um, even open product themselves to get a good feel for what's going on with that product. Um, and especially for guys that have history that know precious metal gems from over the years, they kind of know um, what to look for. Um, you know, precious metal gems, especially historic ones that were pre-upper deck, 
are kind of tough because they have been known to be trimmed on a regular basis because they are so beat up with a chipping issue. Um, but to answer your question, yes, we get calls from time to time when the grading companies see something heavily irregular. Thank you. Is quality control an ongoing battle for Upper Deck? Is it something that you're focused on? You're bringing on some new third-party printing vendors. You're now you've recently moved out to Italy for we see it. We can right. see it on the back of the card printed in in Italy. How do you how do you coach your third-party printing vendors, especially a new one in Europe, and and like to let them know just how important this is? You know, we don't want. I don't. I don't think the hobby wants every card to come out pristine. It, there would be no differentiation that way. I think we'd like, even if we don't admit it, I think we'd like some differentiation. How do you approach that with a new vendor? And again, back to the original thing, question I mentioned is, is it just an ongoing battle for you? Well, everybody likes differentiation unless it's their card, right? <laughs> everybody wants everybody wants their card to be perfect. Um, they don't mind if other people's uh, cards are beat up. Well, well said. Um, so... Look, we spend a lot of time on quality control. Um, and honestly, there are so many aspects that we look at with a card that, again, aren't quickly recognizable. You know, is the foil adhering properly? How is the UV coating uh, going down? You know, what is the centering of the player um, if, it's, if it's done on a white background? Is it registered from side to side or top to bottom? Does the logo line up in the right place? Um, so, you know, while we focus a lot of times on the corner edges, surface, um, and centering, there are so many other things that we're looking at, 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 on any given product run. Um, and we spend a ton of time, but the reality is there's going to be issues. Um, and in particular, it seems to always be one particular insert, one particular subset, one particular technology that has an issue in any particular product run. Um, the one that we're paranoid about because we've had issues over the years is the the young guns. Um, that's the one I, I would say we spend the most time on every year to make sure that that those come out as perfect as possible. But even when you do, you still end up with a, a pink dot or some weird thing that happens uh, over the years. So, you know, I, I wish we could get it all, but we're we're just we can't get to the level of perfection that we'd all like to be at. And, and as far as like a new vendor, the Italian new vendor and that, are there are there conversations that happen at the outset to just emphasize the importance and to, to stick to this, to adhere to the standards that I assume you provide them? And do they do they understand just how valuable these things can be? Yeah, look, you know, the the vendor in Italy, this is not their first rodeo. They've been making cards for, for other companies for years. I think what they're not typically used to is the rigorous standards that we put to them when we're bringing people on as a new vendor. Um, so the feedback we get with any new vendor is we can't believe how hard you guys are on us. Um, and uh, we can't we don't understand your level of expectations compared to customers we've had in the past. Um, so there, honestly, there are some vendors that either can't get to the standards that we set out, or they just don't want to work with us because we are so rigorous and look that we take a lot of pride in upper deck cards being the best cards in the industry. And there's a lot of pain that goes with that. And a lot of honestly, um, quality control and training that goes into hitting upper deck standards. I'll tell you, like outside of the quality control and some, some, um, you know, issues with, with, with 
printing and, and, and again, the QC, I do think that uh, that Upper Deck does make the, the most well-constructed card. They feel the best in hand and your designers are second to none uh, in, in across all across all trading cards. And in my personal opinion, we're, I think hockey's fortunate to have Upper Deck as the, as the licensee. Carlos here asked Jason, how many young guns of each player are produced every year or this year? Uh, honest, I honestly don't know, but even if I knew, I, I wouldn't disclose it. I think that's part of the, the mystery. You know, it's one of those things that I always talk about is that sometimes you're better off not knowing, um, that makes it more fun, um, than actually knowing, right. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like Christmas, you know, I watch my kids open presents. They love the anticipation of what's in the box. And they're somewhat disappointed after they open their Christmas presents and actually know what they have. It's there's something about that anticipation and that mystery that um, is exciting for us as collectors. I'm going to push back a little bit on that. I, I think that there is a, a, a movement towards wanting to know more than ever before, simply because of the value cards have gone up in value a lot recently. And I think people would, would like to know more now than ever before with the advent of social media, more sharing of cards, more options for cards. Um, I think that, you know, just like Fleer has come back into vogue in, in the recent years, I could see that uh, maybe becoming something where, you know, there's going to be more and more pressure to, to divulge that. Not that you're going to have to give into it, but, you know, I guess the question people are going to ask really is going to be how much of it is, well, maybe we don't want to know versus you don't want us to know because there's so many of them. Well, look, I, I think, you know, we're at a weird state in this hobby where people think that anything over 25 or 99 is too much, right? So, you know, again, perception is reality. Look, I would love to know, you know, how many of my Patrick Watt OPG rookie cards exist out there, but I have no idea. But that doesn't stop me from spending a lot of money on buying my Patrick Wah OPG, um, you know, rookie cards. So, you know, it's... You know, it's a it's a catch twenty two. Honestly, I'd like to see, you know, less focus on numbering and and card count and more enjoyment of the card themselves than what we have. Because I, I do, I get frustrated with the fact that hey, if you number it higher than ninety nine, well, that you know, I, I've seen commentary that that shouldn't count as a hit, you know, or that's not limited enough. Like, who cares if it's over ninety nine? So, you know, I think we can take things a bit to to extremes. Yeah. So Carlos makes the comment as an investor, I need to know the circulating supply. I think that, you know, when you use the word investor, you're almost thinking about, you know, uh, trading in a stock, you know, you know what the float is out there, you know, the issued, the number of issued stock. So it's, uh, I think you're going to get pushback on that from the hobby. I think they'd, they'd rather know, but listen, I'm not going to push you anymore on that. We've heard, we've heard your, your case. And I think we'll just let that lie as it is for now, even though some people will probably say I didn't push you hard enough, but that's okay. I push you as much as I'm uh, comfortable doing here. I want to, I want you to come back on the show again, Jason. And <laughs> this is how I do it by, by striking that balance. So um, sports, the tornado says both of you just did a huge favor to the hobby. So many important issues were talked about. Congrats. And thank you very much. Well, this is Chris who has a, an LCS in the Montreal area. Thank you, Chris, uh, for that comment. And uh, on behalf of you as well, Jason, I think that's a nice comment for us. And then uh, Reed here wants to know, any plans to improve the trade-in system for redemptions, I guess? I know many are afraid to send in a, or a damaged card as well, uh, are afraid to send in a damaged card ticket 
uh, they they pulled because they fear they will get less value for things in return. Um, I think I understand the question, but perhaps yeah. you do better. Are you? Uh, can you res- reply to that at all? Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a a very legitimate concern. You know, if you have a one of one shield card that's damaged, like we don't have another one sitting on the shelf here, right? Or if you have a, a green PMG number to ten, like we don't have one sitting on the shelf. Um, so you know, the luck of that we actually have something that you'll be happy with comparable in stock is a crapshoot. It really is. And we try to make everybody happy and, and we understand the concern. So I, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, my advice and and you know, especially from a collector's viewpoint, like if you PC that player and it's a super limited card and that card's important to you, I would probably keep it. Um, as a damage card, then I would trade it in because you don't know what you're going to get. And we can't even guarantee you that we have the player that you collect in stock at any given time. You know, a lot of the stuff that that we end up on the shelf is, is you know, sample boxes that we've opened in-house um, to check quality control. Um, you know, it's a couple of cards left at the end of a product run. I mean, there just isn't a lot here to pick from in a lot of cases. Okay, well, fair enough. Thanks for the question, Reed. And Jason, thanks for... Uh, responding to that one. And uh, our friend Matt from the Essential Credentials says, my anticipation for products has come up since this show started. Thanks for any Marc-Andre flurries you can get out <laughs> for us. He's a, a big Mark on. He mentioned earlier that he looks forward to meeting you and the team at the National. Will you be at the National yourself, Jason? I will be, but you know, I have to say I'm, I tend to be pretty hard to track down because everybody you know, wants to set up a, a meeting there. But I will be there for, for a few days for sure. All right. Great. Well, listen, um, we've gotten through my notes for the episode. We've we've done better with the comments than I thought we would. So thank you to the chat for all the great questions and comments. Uh, Jason, I'm we're going to wrap up. I'm going to give you an opportunity for any final comments, words you'd like to share with, with the audience as, as, a, as a representation of the hobby overall here before we, we end the episode. And I'll then thank you a little bit more formally. No, I mean, look, all I can do is say thank you to everybody that that collects, whether you collect upper deck cards or not. You know, it's an important hobby. I would say you need to continue to to hold people accountable in this hobby, um, whether it's manufacturers, content creators, hobby shops, distributors, other collectors. You know, we have to to be strong and make sure that we uphold the values that we all expect uh, collecting around the hobby. All right. Well, nice message. So uh, Carlos says, possibly the best sports cards interview I've ever seen, a masterpiece. Thank you, Carlos. That's a wonderful compliment for both Jason and myself. Joe Perot says, hugely informative show. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Joe. And uh, I want to let everyone know you can follow me on Instagram at jlee underscore sports cards live. It's on the ticker. Twitter at sports cards liv1. Also, follow tag grading. Uh, join the Discord server, join the Facebook community cage, follow Tag Rating at Tag Rating on Instagram. The website is taggrading.com, which is where you can go to join the Discord or the Facebook uh, community groups. Thank you, Fact Sakes. Thank you, Tabletop Gamer says the hosting and guest responses were great to hear. Greatly appreciate that. Thank you, Al G. Uh, Jason, Al's been, Al's a lifelong uh, big time hockey card collector, uh, local to me in Calgary, but Loves uh, Jerome McGinley, just as an FYI, so very much. Uh, Sports La Tornade, will there be a CDD convention this year, Jason? 
Uh, there will be a CDD in January of 2024. You will see an RSVP hold the date going out very, very soon to all of our CDDs to get you guys ready for it. Awesome. Maybe I'll have to attend that. Uh, Mitch says, Jeremy, really appreciate you getting interviews like these out there. And thank you, Jason, for your time and insight. Thank you, Baz, baseball card curmudgeon, TI. Thank you so much. Hockey cards up. Thank you very much. Jason, I want to thank you again for coming on. Listen, we're at two hours and 20 minutes. So that's a lot of time on a Saturday night. I'm grateful to have you. Uh, so thank you again. We'll have you back again when, when, it, when, it, when it makes sense that down the road in the future. Thanks again to the chat for your comments and questions tonight. And uh, with that, Jason, you hang tight for a moment. But with that, everybody, this episode of Sports Cards Live is now over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.